surprise. I am your new cellmate. <laughs> and I've come to make your life a living hell. Prepare for a bitter harvest. Welcome to the third Spotlight Christmas special. I'm Liam Dempsey. I'm joined by my usual co-host of Matt. Is it the third already? My word. The third, baby. The third. We didn't do one the first year. I don't know why uh, it haunts me to this day. And I'm also joined by Paul Wilson Morris. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming! (laughs) (laughs) I am literally joining you boys from the cold zone itself. Yeah, not that cold in my house. I have a blue galaxy light on, (laughs) casting the room in a nice cold blue glow. Uh, Yes, you heard right, listeners. This episode, we are taking on Batman and Robin, 1997 critically reviled film, which destroyed the superhero movie for at least three years. It's written by Akiva Goldsman, though, who is currently one of the head honchos of the Star Trek universe, alongside Alex Kurtzman. He's probably the main guy. He co-wrote the pilot to Star Trek Discovery and to Picard, and he's the executive producer on both of those shows, as well as the upcoming Strange New Worlds. So this is a legit Star Trek connection as he wrote the screenplay for Batman and Robin. Probably still his greatest achievement. I'm sure <laughs> you'll all agree. This is Spotlight at the Movies for our Christmas episode. So last year, we did Christmas Eve with Patrick Stewart. The bar has truly been set on the floor. Can Batman <laughs> and Robin leap over it? Can they run at the camera I mean, in slow motion and just like step over Christmas Eve? I think they can do it. This is the way the world could end. Please, show some mercy. With ice. With a kiss. With Benna. I probably should have mentioned this. I'm... Poison. Poison Ivy. And the only man who can stop them. I freeze. I'm Batman. Can't do it alone. Batman will watch his beloved Gotham perish. Bundle up, boys. There's a storm coming. Kill the heroes! It's the hockey team from hell! Cool party! Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, everyone, chill! George Clooney. Julianne of the Marrying Kind. I know you've had your wild nights. Good night. Wild doesn't doesn't quite cover it. Chris O'Donnell. I want a car. Chicks dig the car. This is why Superman works alone. Uma Thurman. So many people to kill. So little time. Alicia Silverstone. And you are? Batgirl. 
That's not awfully PC. What about that person? Found the bat cave. She knows who we are. I guess we just have to kill her. Yep. In Joel Schumacher film. It all comes together. We're going to need a bigger cave. Batman and Robin. Akiva Goldsman, we've actually spoken about him before on Spotlight the Movies because, of course, he was the Star Trek connection for Dark Tower, which we covered in our eighth Spotlight of the Movies. But he's also written loads and loads of other scripts. He was one of Joel Schumacher's go-to guys because he actually wrote The Client, Batman Forever, and A Time to Kill back-to-back for Joel, along with this as well. Uh, He then went on to write Lost in Space, Practical Magic, A Beautiful Mind, I, Robot, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend, and The Dark Tower. So that is a real mixed bag there because there's some great stuff in there. Cinderella Man. We're both big fans, aren't we, Paul? Oh, I liked Cinderella a lot. It's good, good performance from Crow. It's a really yes. good Depression-era feel-good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think with somebody like Goldsman, it's going to be like... It's a numbers game, really, I guess. And if he puts out as much as he does, there'll be some stinkers and there'll be some good ones. And it kind of makes you realise, you know, anyone's only ever as good as their last project. And keep I, failing upwards, you keep getting more chances what? to do so, so. I think as well it's like... Well, you know, I actually got it. I was going to say, like, mostly it's in the execution of this film why it's reviled, but like, it's on the page. Like, those puns are on the page, are they not? So I think, it, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around for, like, people who dislike this film, but we'll see. Well, we've got, we've got a long and checkered history with this film, haven't we, guys? No, we absolutely I do. I mean, a long and checkered history. I mean, it goes right back to even before the film was actually officially released because I've told this story on the podcast before, but I feel like as this is the actual Batman and Robin episode... I should say it again. Back in 1997, I was a junior film critic for my local paper, The Daily Echo. Uh, I started being a junior film critic at The Daily Echo in 1996. Yeah, I would have been 11. The first film I reviewed for the paper was Dracula, Dead and Loving It. So a noble beginning. And then I eventually uh, got the opportunity to review Batman and Robin. You guys know I'm a massive comic book uh, nerd and a massive Batman fan, so I was you know, I was excited for this movie because Batman Forever, you know, say what you like about it, but when it came out, I was ten. So for a young Batman fan, Batman Forever was fucking wicked. And so Batman Robin, I was so ridiculously excited for this film. You know, to the point where I think, you know, I went and I couldn't, it couldn't be bad. It couldn't be bad because it would be too much of a letdown. What you've got to remember is I was seeing this film along with other critics. So I hadn't read any negative feedback, or especially in 1997, you're not checking mm. ain't it called You could form your true, like pure opinion. Exactly. So literally was, I went to see it without any critical knowledge that this was going to be a failure or anything like that. And I was like, amazing. Absolutely incredible. Another triumph from Schumacher. (laughs) And, you know, my review was published in the paper. 10 out of 10. I gave it a full mark. Like, you know, the highest (laughs) it could go. 
You never wrote it for the paper <laughs> well, no, again. He, yeah, your he, word he, he was, was contacted by Warner Brothers and said, can we use you for the poster? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If there was ever a chance to the, get on a poster. You know, I considered it at the time one of the greatest films ever made. Um, Would you uh, have sold out at age 12? Like, never too early to take a... Take a breath. <laughs> they're like, they're yeah, like, we'll yeah, pay you yeah, to give it ten out of ten. You're like, I no, was like, uh, it is ten out of ten. We talk. And uh, no, I mean, I genuinely, I think, I, but I think, you know, even then, right? Even then, there was a niggling feeling. There was a niggling feeling in the back of my soul that maybe it wasn't as good as I was. Right, kind making of movies out. can be bad. You know, as time went on, I came to realise, oh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's not so great. And this kind of cultivated in 2005 when you guys were round my old parents' house and we were going to do an all-night film shoot. We needed something to keep us up and I pulled off the shelf my VHS copy of Batman and Robin. And yeah, well, we like, it, it okay, wasn't that we were this. doing an all-night shoot. It was that we needed to be awake and shooting at about 3, 4 a.m. So the best way to be up yeah. and in town for that was just to stay up all night and pull an all-nighter ourselves. Yeah, I think we all probably at this point hadn't seen it in a while. By 2005, this is eight years after it came out. Mm. We watched it. We basically kind of performed a running commentary throughout the film. I remember we were kind of like hysterical. I think we were probably drinking I, as well. I think this is... Are showgirls. For what people talk about being showgirls is that, you know, new cult classic where people are just going to laugh along to it and it's a bit of a colour camp cult classic. This is our showgirls. Yeah, 100%. I think you're right. There's just been a new documentary that's just come on TV called Guilt-Free Pleasures. Uh, one of the centrepiece films of that documentary is showgirls. So, you know, we really are seeing, and I, I would argue, you know, Batman and Robert be put alongside that as a guilt-free pleasure because... Personally, for me, there is a huge amount to enjoy here. I'm sure we'll get into that as we well, I, go I through the film. Talk a little bit about my issue with Batman. So, like, you are a massive comic book fan. I, I'm not, but it's just Batman around about 11, 12, like the Batman movies were everything to me. Batman Returns, when it premiered on Sky Movies, I remember like being quite affected by that in early age and sort of like knowing it was a little bit adult because it was the you know a bit more hardcore film. I saw Batman with Nicholson obviously thereafter. I was really excited about those movies but when Batman Forever came out I, I missed it cinema. I never personally really went to the cinema to see these movies. But like I knew there was a hype around it because the sticker album was out and my friend had that. But <laughs> that's when you knew something was shit. Came on my dad's hooky Swedish pay per view channel TV One Thousand. TV One Thousand, yeah, which introduced me to among other things hardcore pornography. Uh, <laughs> so you know, yeah. So I was I was catching the uncut version of Batman Forever because I found out later it was cut severely in the UK for like various things. Uh, so I was getting the full unadulterated. Batman experience. Uh, yeah, so I was like, those three under my belt, well into it, and then I see the video cassette of Batman Robins coming out soon. Because again, I don't go to the cinema to see these things. I, I knew there was a. What's going film. on with you, mate? Like you're not d- even my... in the cinema for Batman Robin, cultural event of the no. year. My parents never took me to the cinema. Really, I had to really twist their arm to do anything like that with me. And wow. so I didn't have the uh, the guts to get on a bus. The guts. So I saw there was like a graphic novel adaptation of Batman Robin. That was the only thing I sort of knew about before going into the video cassette. Awful. I was like, Awful. I'm obviously going to own it day one. And what was my first reaction to it? Like. It was a bit silly, but I kind of like digged a lot of things about it. I think because it had pretty much beat for beat the same score as Batman Forever. It had some action that I was kind of excited about, but it, it was 
even from the first watch, I was like, something's a little bit off about this one. And I think the thing that tipped me off, even at that young age, uh, when whilst you were giving it 10 out of 10, I was going, why is there a spotlight on Mr. Freeze as he walks? Who is controlling the spotlight? And what, what does he do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those camp theatrical elements that you don't quite question. As soon as you notice them, it breaks the reality of the entire film. I can't really remember seeing this. I don't know if it's just because our late night screening of it in 2005 has eclipsed every other memory I would have had at that point. Because I can't even remember going into that night what my opinion of the film was. Because surely by then, we were like late teens, early 20s during that night, and we would have been in the grip of film school pretentiousness of starting to throw away everything we loved dear about guilt-free pleasures. Oh, you mean in 2005? Oh, yeah. I was like... In 2005, Absolutely, like... We all went through that phase of yeah, just Yeah, so we probably cinematics. went into that night going, like, <laughs> here's, here's some kind of childhood classic that we already know is bad. Let's kind of laugh at it. And then we did. <laughs> but it also <laughs> won us over to, to a point where we've never forgotten that night 15 years on. Well, that's it. I mean, it's inspired so many other rewatches, right down to when you and me, Liam, saw it just the other year at the Prince Charles Cinema in a new 4K print. And that was a fantastic yeah. night. And I kind of wish that had been busier, actually, because if that had the kind of that 2005 night times 100 people energy, that would have been wild. But it was so great to see it on the big screen and actually remember it this time, coming into it with all the preconceptions we have now of how much we, we unadulteratedly love it. So that's so, the You're uh, not going to get the knives out takedown of this movie tonight. We're going to be relishing some of the things to love about yeah. this movie. Yeah, there's no way you can watch this and say it's a good film in many no. ways and then in, in many other ways it's exactly the film it needs to be and the people in it are doing what they need to do and the way it looked like every element to it is doing what it needs to do to be a certain type of film and i just think a lot of people don't want that certain type of film which was you know by the time nolan's batman begins comes around it's like oh yes here's the complete opposite of what this film is but they're definitely both batman and like you can say, you know, this is the modern era's, you know, Adam West one down to a T for a film that's kind of made to sell toys and be colorful and stuff and just be fun as like a Saturday morning cartoon, which Batman always has been as well. I think this does it so well. And obviously there's elements in here that are just weak in, uh, in a uh, general uh, sense. But yeah. I don't know. But yeah, this is directed by Joel Schumacher, obviously who unfortunately passed away uh, this year. When he did pass away, I think it was on the episode we did with Chris Hewitt on Columbo, and it just happened basically moments before we recorded that episode, uh, the news had broke. And so we did talk about Joel Schumacher a bit on that episode. But I mean, yeah, he's an interesting filmmaker, I think. I think he gets a little bit written off because of this film really. But actually, if you look at his back catalogue, he did some really, really interesting movies. Uh, Falling Down is is, is a great film. Mm-hmm. A, a very, and it very just hit Netflix film. as well. Uh, so it yes. would get a revival, you know for sure. I looked up the other day, it was in like the top 10 films on Netflix of people. That's watching. great. This is the thing about, you know, why the moan streaming for lack of catalogue, when it does put a catalogue front and centre like this, I think that's where it kind of really you know, gets the reaction. It's due, yeah. really. Yes, yeah, definitely. And um, I've recently been watching quite a few uh, Schumacher films just because, you know, he passed away, unfortunately. So I watched Flatliners, which I actually really enjoyed. Uh, Flatliners, I also watched Sent Almost Fire. And I mean, you know, one thing I will say for Schumacher is he is a very visually stylish director, I think. You know, if you look at those movies... Flatliners and St. Elmo's Fire on Blu-ray. Like, they're really gorgeous films to look at. He is very, very good at literally just getting a 
bunch of like the most gorgeous people together <laughs> and you know shooting the fuck out of them in this really unique day glow fashion i do actually think he is a really cool director who has some really interesting films to his name oh, like, you I, know, i'd say for me eight millimeter is getting a bit of a like a, a resurgence at the moment i think that's a, another film that's i've seen a lot written about and it is, I think it's written off mm-hmm. as just absolute trash sleaze when it came out, but here's some like excellent Nick Cage action, late 90s in his face-off pomp. You've got Gandolfini's as a uh, scuzzy kind of casting couch dickhead in it as well. You've got Wacken Phoenix in an early role and a whole film about is a snuff movie. Like it's just brilliant, great thriller, but it makes you feel filthy after watching it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, recently featured on the Rewatchables. Great episode. I definitely recommend you going to listen to that. Have I seen 8mm? Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't think I have, actually, you know. Oh, um, get on it. Like, yeah, the Schumacher film that I really enjoy was Phone Booth, because I thought that did, you know, a contained thriller really well. Like, Colin Farrell's really well cast in that for the era of his uh, career he was in at the time. And Sutherland gives a great voice performance, which, of course, feeds into a lot of his 24 gruffness and everything. And I I remember seeing that at the time, because that was in the middle of college, and just being like, wow, films can just be these contained... Because it was very much a case of how you're going to centre a whole film around a guy stuck in a phone booth. And it is really gripping. Stu Shepard thought he had the game wired. Our business. Tickets. Four for Britney Spears, right? No, you owe me, Stu. It's got to be the night of the 18th. And I will deliver you a truckload of celebrities. But today, someone's got his number. Yeah. Don't even think about leaving that booth. Wrong number, pal. I'm aiming at you right now. Can you feel it, Stu? Did you call me Stu? Who is this? Someone who enjoys watching you. I have a 30 caliber bolt action 700 with a hands-hold tactical scope. You mean like a rifle? At this range, the exit wound ought to be about the size of a small tangerine. You're bluffing. There's only one way to find out. Oh my god, you shot him. Look at all of the people, Stu. He's the shooter! I've been here! It wasn't me! What did I do to deserve this? How I mean? If you have to ask, then you're not ready to know yet. Put down the gun and raise your hands. Where's the gun? You see a gun? I want to see you talk to one of your weapons. I didn't shoot anybody. I just want to hear your side of it. That's if you tell him, I will kill you. I ain't got no side of it. You're in this position because you're not telling the truth. I'm in this position because you've got a gun. Come on, Stu. Don't you get the game yet? Confess your sins, Stuart. Hang, hang up. Stu hasn't been totally honest with you. His wife looks very angry. He said he wasn't married. Leave her out of this! I have your wife here with me. This is exciting. You get to choose between them. Kelly, Pam, Bam, Bam! Get her out of here, all right? They're in position. I give the orders here. Look, I'm sure we can work this out. It's do or die time. One. Hold your fire! Two. Now it's like a phone what? <laughs> yeah, because at the time the <laughs> film was saying phone booths are a thing of the past, there's only X amount left. And that was in 2003. So I can't imagine like the kids of today watching them being like, wait, what, what's happening? <laughs> I always thought the funny thing that movie is like when he compares them to like the other guys he shot, Colin Farrell's like barely done anything wrong. <laughs> it's just, mm. <laughs> he's not actually <laughs> yeah. that bad a guy. <laughs> but you're right, 8mm, eight, eight fantastic cast. I mean, early role for Phoenix. He hadn't been in a huge amount 
at that point as an adult. And he's great in that movie. I rewatched it recently. I think that performance, much more than something like Gladiator or something, signifies the actor that Phoenix is going to become. Like, because it's yeah. a kind of darker kind of role, you know, because, I mean, that whole film is like, yeah, I think the thing about 8mm is it's like ridiculously dark, isn't it? It's the ultimate, you know, how long can you stare into the abyss before the abyss stares back at you film. Uh, Gandolfini is so horrible in it. He is her, uh, a horrible scuzzbag. Put me out of my fucking misery. Pull the fucking trigger. Come on. <laughs> Come on, pull the fucking trigger. Do it! Do it! <laughs> you can't do it, you little pansy bitch. Another person who lost too soon as well, you know, where we, you know, when you come across a Gandolfini performance, they're like, oh, this, that's one less of his I'll ever see again. And for the first time, and, you know, I just saw him in The Last Castle opposite Robert Redford recently. And it just elevates this movie. It's like the guy was not, like, utilised by Hollywood at all. There was so much more he could have done, which is just a shame. I mean, Cut. you know, you know who's my favourite. For years, I kind of used to go, oh, uh, he's given my favourite acting performance because of my, you know, absolute adoration for The Sopranos. But now I just go, yeah, he's my favourite actor. Like, I ain't give a fuck the fact that he didn't have enough big film roles or anything like that for the surprise alone and also for every film role i've ever seen him do he absolutely smashes it no matter how small the role true romance incredible eight millimeter great killing them softly the drop mm-hmm. it was his last film he's brilliant in Did you ever go around to the front of the bar and take a look at the the sign above the bar whose name is on it oh that's my name because I used to own it once. Yeah, you've been playing that flute for a long time now. Where are they? And you've been uh, awfully fresh since you got that dog that you mistake for a kid. Marv, you can't redo it. All right? They pressed, you blinked, it's done, it's over. It's been over for a while now. Well, I'm not the guy that wasted his entire life waiting for it to start. Why did that? Mm-hmm. At least I had something once. I was respected. I was feared. When I walked into a place people sat up, they, they sat up straight. They noticed. What'd you ever have? And a fucking bar stool that you put that old bitty at and bought her free drinks and don't think I don't know that you did it on purpose. That was my stool, and nobody sat on that stool because it was Cousin Marv's stool. And that meant something. That meant something. But it didn't. Ever. It was just a stool. He, he's in that pantheon of guys where you say, you put him in it, and it makes any film X amount better. Because he's... Yeah, always yeah. gonna be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough said, of course, Matt. You're that's really touching. Yours. Yeah, and I love that he's film. Incredibly brilliant, Matt. I mean, even his small role in the Taking of Powerhouse Monty Three remake, he elevates. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, even I totally then, agree. He's the best. Even then, it. guest star on right. Sesame Street smashed it. Oh. Hey Zoe, oh. Oh. what's wrong? Oh, Mr. Gandolfini, I'm so glad you're here. I heard a loud noise and it really, really scared me. Oh. Oh. Don't worry, Zoe. Everything's okay. Come oh, here. Oh, 
Oh, thank you. I feel much better now. Good, I'm glad. Because I know what it's like to be scared. You get scared? Yeah, sure, everybody gets scared sometimes. Kind of give Schumacher's due. Like, there's a thing, in, in part of our defense about Robin, it should really be about how this guy has been reviled based on this one film. It's like, the guy's got props, man. Like, he's got a great career beyond this movie as well. So it's like, this is no schlub coming on to do mm. this movie. Okay, it's like, Batman Forever kind of seems like the tipping point where you've got a bit of Burton still producing it. It's like a blend of returns into what we get here. It never feels like one either in either camp, really. Yeah, it's truly the midway camp point of an the animorph transformation, isn't it? It's like <laughs> one foot in Burton's world and one foot heading towards Schumacher, yeah. Uh, but this one, it goes like two feet, two foot challenge into like Schumacher-verse. I think certainly Schumacher really felt the pressures on this film of making a movie that was essentially a toy advert, which is something we've, you know, we talked about when we did Transformers, the movie. Batman Forever was a gigantic success at the box office, huge, definitely the biggest Batman film at the box office thus far. And this is the thing, this is what people forget. Like, at the end of the day, like, Joel Schumacher gets blamed. But this is what he was being asked to do. Batman Forever was a huge success. And so, of course, the studio wanted more of that. And Batman and Robin is essentially Batman Forever dialed up to 11. That, that's what it is. There was loads of toy tie-ins and everything like that. And that's what they were trying to do. And that's why... There's, like, so many costume changes, so many vehicles in this, everything like that. It's all to kind of tie into the uh, the toys. It feels a bit like the, the vehicle change you mentioned there. It's like, it feels like when you have Star Wars and Ghostbusters toy ranges where they actually have all these other vehicles they never used in the film or the show, like mm. the ectocopter and uh, or, you know, all these yes. other things. And it's just like, in this film, you see them on screen. Like, there's a scene dedicated to just, like, you know, the bat hovercraft and things like that. Yeah, you did you ever get see them, them as toys though? I don't recall ever actually seeing any Batman and Robin toys, ironically. Oh, there's lo yeah, I remember the Batman and Robin toys. The Batman okay. and Robin toy line kind of represents the last, in my head at least, the last big toy line of that type I remember. Mm. After that, you know, we got that bleed of computer games completely taking over and people just not being interested in toys anymore. But the Batman and Robin toy line is the last big one, I remember. Yeah, like, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, 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 definitely the Batmobile uh, from this movie in it. For sure, mm, for sure. Yeah. This definitely yeah, yeah. kind of ties into an overall point of being like, this in many ways feels like the last big blockbuster film like intended for kids to the point where it is based or you know in getting toy lines out there but it's still a big summer movie i think just fandom and, and culture was in a much different place back then whereas now all the adults who are into these things want these films for them and if they think it's pandering to yeah. anyone else they get all pissy about it this is the last big gasp of a film going this is your big summer movie and it's for your eight-year-olds you know and you can come but, along if yeah. you've got it's a nephew or whatever but it's not for I, you so i totally agree matt it's the last time a-list properties were treated this way yeah in terms yeah. of like they're actually aiming them for children mm -hmm. uh for family mm. entertainment this is the last pg raid after this everything's 12 spider-man's 12 batman reboots all 12 if, if you see like a pg rated thing it's like agent cody banks or something like that it's just like some kind of like teen lit not as thing. big of that's not IP a, not a big this, thing yeah. it's not as, yeah not a big ip even the harry potters ended up all being 12s didn't they like so uh, yeah they i guess did, those yeah, films yeah. like the books all, they kind of grew I, with I the audience say, Really, I suppose the final nail in the coffin would have been Phantom Menace because that came yeah, out two years after this, and that's almost like you can't. But that was the like the last try. Like Lucas had a go, and that 
you know, essentially, yes, of course, it was successful box office-wise, but everyone, you know, had something to say about episode one. And then even then, by Revenge of the Sith, it's 12, isn't it? Yeah, so it goes U, PG, 12 through that, through that yes. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even there, like, ends up going up. So let's get into this right from the beginning. We open with the Warner Brothers logo and we have something that we've done in the other Batman movies in this era. It transforms into the Batman logo and then freezes immediately. <laughs> we know, right, okay, this is it. It's Mr. Freeze. And then we go into the opening credits. Very, very similar to the opening credits in Batman Forever, where it's mm -hmm. like just the names kind of shooting out Whoosh. at the screen. Arnie, of and course, getting top billing of the Batman film. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because this is the movie where Batman doesn't fucking get top billing. Obviously, at this point, George Clooney is a TV star. You know, he's pulled off TV for ER. Apparently, he was a bargain price-wise. And the real star of the show is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is at the, the peak of his fame. He gets a 25 million payday for this film. Oh. But one thing I noticed upon watching this this time is when the credits are coming on, I always thought in my head what I remembered it as is as the credit for the actor goes away to the distance, I remember it boing. It made a boing sound, like boing, like going off. But it doesn't. What it is is Chris O'Donnell and Alicia Silverstone's credit. They make a lot of motorbike noise. As they disappear ah. into the distance, they make a brrrr, like noise. I mean, because obviously they both drive motorbikes. So they Make a motorbike noise, the credits. See, the, 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 the sound design is, is being integrated into the movie from the very beginning moments here. It's, it's, yes, it's got such an exactly, artistry exactly. behind it. Do you want a bit of a treat here? So I have a script of this film. It is undated, I don't know which draft it is, and the opening part is Interior Batcave, Batman's Costume Vault. Chrome and Shadow, a black gauntlet snaps into place, a cape whips over a dark rubber back. Not but, but we know what we're saying here. Uh, a bat-shaped buckle locks, and it describes more of their tooling up. But then the first exchange is actually slightly different. So it says, Robin appears in the door of his costume vault, dressed in the black and red of his Nightwing costume. Two Dark Avengers stand suited, ready to take back the night. And Batman says, nice suit, and today you are? Robin says, Nightwing, scourge of the darkest evil. And Batman says, this is all about fashion for you, isn't it? And Robin says, it's the gear. Chicks love the gear. Not well, that's interesting because <laughs> I do like that because, of course, he called Robin in this film. But really, I think if they'd gone... Because he's got a different costume from Forever. I think it would have been better if they had gone He's Nightwing already because Chris O'Donnell looks ridiculously old in these movies. I mean, it's like, you know, in the Jump Street films, people always go Channing Tatum like yeah he's pretending to be a high school student it's like what the fuck are you talking about you look at least 40 like yeah and I feel exactly the same way about Chris O'Donnell in this film because literally in this movie there is only nine years between him and George Clooney in this movie <laughs> and yet Clooney is meant to be the surrogate father figure. In Batman Forever, they play it as if he is an orphan. He's underage, which was always ridiculous because Chris O'Donnell looks literally about 50. It's absolutely <laughs> insane that he could be that young. And this time, they look even closer together in age. And it's just mad. So at least if they'd gone, oh, he's now Nightwing, it would have meant, oh, we, but time has passed. 
he's a more adult yeah. uh, version of Dick Grayson. And that would have kind of levelled the playing field somewhat. But the actual tool-up sequence, which is, of course, a kind of direct duplication of Batman Forever's opening tool-up sequence, except now with Robin involved as well. I think it's fucking badass. Like, I, I fucking love the opening tool-up sequence and all the sound effects. Like, whoosh, whoosh, as, like, you know, they're grabbing all their different stuff and they're tooling up. And when I say badass, I mean badass because, I mean, immediately we see some hot badass and Roman ass like in this way and bat crotch and bat nips. Now, the thing is, this is something that's, of course, been much derided since it came out, these shots that we see at the beginning of the film. But I've got to say, I was thinking about this the other day. And obviously, Joel Schumacher at the time won the few openly gay directors in Hollywood. And of course, you know, I think he's directing this film from a gay man's perspective. And what I'll say is, how many fucking times have we seen a, a close-up of Scarlett Johansson's leather-clad ass in the Avengers films? Like, and that's kind of, you know, modern day, like, you know, mm. beyond the kind of... You, I was trying to hide it, saying, like, we're not making a thing of it, but here it is. Whereas this is going, yeah. have it. I love this it. Going, you love it too, it. yes? <laughs> It's some equal opportunities exploitation going down right yeah. now of the opening of this film. And the reason it gets kind of pulled out and everything like that is because people are not used to seeing that with men. But Schumacher was like, we'll go fucking put it front and centre. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's fucking I've been to it. Uh, there's, a, there's a thread on like Twitter, isn't there, like or recently, where it's like people talk about Batman Robin their sexual awakening and realising that yeah. they were bi or gay based on this movie, just sort of like how high camp it is and just go, I think I love Poison Ivy or I think this is so hot, like leather. I'm, I'm into leather. Yeah. It's like mainstreaming of like fetishes and I think yeah. that's cool. I remember reading a great thread on Instagram <laughs> about this movie from a gay critic, he was talking about basically he felt that this film, one of the reasons it had been so critically reviled, was a reaction from straight critics of the overall gayness of the film. Because like I think believe you said before, Paul, we're never going to see a major blockbuster with this much camp again. Well, I, I hope that I'm wrong about that. I think hoping things come around. You know, it's a bit like the Roger Moore era of, of James Bond, mm. just like so past us now i feel like there's a there's a, a lack of fun you know, fun and campiness that sort of like you know pervaded those films and also this movie that just it seems to be given way to like dour ultra seriousness you know there's just not anything playful about these movies now for kids and this film sort of like feels like the last vestige of that yeah era. i think it's something to bemoan actually something to be missed because 9-11 took a lot of things from us and uh including true lies 2 where they said terrorists won't be funny anymore it's like well they are fucking funny like they're just idiots aren't they four lines prove that i think you're both really right there in that i can see I think these days, if a film was going to come out that would be this camp, it would be based on an IP or a property that is inherently camp in its intention and, and what it is. Whereas this is probably the last time that you will see an IP like Batman, who does have roots in camp, of course, but who has been interpreted in so many different ways, be like, we're going to do just a big Batman thing, and the way you're getting it is through this big camp lens. Um, but it is camp because it's like it's a man dressing up as yeah. a bat it, it's very nature of it it's like it's dressing up this whole film and all the villains as well they've got costumes and I think this way it shoots it a bit like Paris is burning mm. <laughs> people are turning up in their like absolutely dressed to the nines in their costumes they look fab absolutely fantastic the spotlight's literally yeah. on them it's a panther 
Yeah, yes. Arnie's the Dane. Of course, we've got Elliot Goldfinnell's insanely operatic score that's going on immediately from when the film starts. He's so histrionic and grandiose. You know what I mean? But I think it's perfectly fitting for this movie. Little shout out to Stephen Trumbull on his podcast where he uh, did one of his little segments where he begins the show where things I've been just thinking about and he just mentioned like the uh, screech on Batman Forever, Elliot Goldenfold soundtrack where you get the, the Forever logo and like, there's this sound effect that is, is it music or is it a sound effect? Nobody knows and nobody can kind of name it but it's <laughs> fucking great. It's not repeated in this movie quite the same way but like I to say nod to Stephen, I, I totally with you on that. I'm, I've been thinking about that for 25 years <laughs> we need the art of the score guys to really break this one down <laughs> yeah yeah oh, absolutely if, if I imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. well they've done batman so, and they, they should do forever the batman forever callbacks continue so you can really tell they try to replicate the success of that film because after this opening tool-up sequence which is literally just the batman forever opening tool-up sequence with robin included you get actually Robin calling back to a line in Batman Forever where he says, you know, I want a car. Chicks dig the car when we see the Batmobile appear. And of course, Batman turns around to him and says, this is why Superman works alone. Which I tell you what, when I was a kid, being a comic book fan that I am, people forget how hard it was for comic book fans back in the 90s, right? Because now you've got a million fucking superhero movies come out. You've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe that connects all the dots. In the 90s, we hadn't got a fucking hope or prayer of that kind of thing. Batman turning around to Batman and Robin and referencing Superman, actually acknowledging that Superman is a person who exists Fucking mind blown in the cinema. Well, it's already it was already referenced in Forever, though, wasn't he, Superman? Uh, well, I think they might reference Metropolis. I think yeah, they, they might, mentioned like, Metropolis, where he said, you know, Metropolis yeah, is yeah, like a few yeah. miles from here. And it was just like holy fucking shit. Superman existed. You could get Batman versus Superman. And of course, Batman versus Superman is a film project they would try to get going. Years, Wolfgang Peterson was going to direct that at one point before eventually we finally got it a couple of years ago and we wish we had it. And obviously we get the, the Batmobile come up in a big toy advert. We know we want to buy that Batmobile. It looks like uh, a toy. I, I didn't like that Batmobile design. I don't like the front. It's just like these glowing lights. Again, I was like a little bit wise to like, this is a bit silly now. I don't know. <laughs> just always preferred the Keaton, Keaton verse. The Burton. Uh, Batmobile. Did anyone have a Batmobile toy? No. Don't think so. I wanted no. one. I had the Burton Batmobile. Oh. So yeah, that was a uh, that gels. was a big deal. Total gels. <laughs> it's like it was weird. I didn't have any toys related to this franchise. It was just I was so into it, like literally around uh, eleven years old. Never translated behind the toys, even though this film Did was like buy the toys. Or was this just a, a leading for us to film? You know, Sorry you, for you. <laughs> you know, I had a million Star Wars toys and still do. Oh yeah, of course you had Star Wars toys too. You can't complain. Yeah. I, I yeah. never had like you had Millennium Vulcan, didn't you? Yeah, it's under the bed literally every night. Oh my god! Well, <laughs> I, mean, I never have Millennium Vulcan, so there you go. That's a that's a that's a fair exchange. And by the time Robin's moment appears, because of course first Batman gets his Batmobile and he drives off, and then uh, Robin gets his bike. And 
it is almost like a deliberately lesser moment for Robin where his bike appears. It kind of feels a bit like wah, 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 when he gets his bike a bit last oh, fucking shit compared to the Batmobile, mate. You can see why he's starting to get pissy already about the pecking order around here. You know, it kind of just like cracks out of a cardboard box, basically. Like it could have just come yeah. up out the floor as is, box but it's fresh. in this weird box that snaps in half. But you're right, Robin's incredibly pissy this entire film. <laughs> Which does really feel like it would make more sense if it was an actual teenager playing him. But I guess we'd need that through in from uh, Forever. But he's, he's, from what I remember about Forever, it seems like he's very much more the whiny teen baby in this one than in Forever, somehow. Yeah, totally. Uh, just Forever screaming about... Yeah, he's not you know, in Two-Face the in the last and... film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In Forever, he's less of a kind of baby than he is here. Basically. Yeah, he's like karate his washing... It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he gets off Joel, and now this is where we get the hint that Michael Goff, one of the few linchpins between all four of these original Batman films, is unwell because yeah, after he's done his usual Alfred shtick of "Can I convince you to take a sandwich, sir? I'll cancel the pizza." You know, he literally we we cut back to him. He's going, "Oh, oh." And he looks a bit unwell. And we're like, oh no, what's going on with Alfred there? So yeah. already we're worried. Goff saying pizza is one of the greatest line readings of all time. <laughs> so, but swiftly followed by Pat Hingle playing Commissioner Gordon, who is also another linchpin of the four movies, appearing yes. to Batman via his Bat video. And now just the production design of the Bat video on the Batmobile is like, I think it's like a round screen. It's sort of like a tunes in. And there's something very 1960s Batman about that, like where you have like screens that are like not square or widescreen. Mm-hmm. They're just like round production design, like bringing you back to the 60s. And you have him just sort of say, there's been a break in at the Gotham Museum. We think it's Mr. Freeze. And you got like George Clooney just going, Mr. Freeze. And that's the end of the scene. Yeah, it's like there's there's no need for any decent exposition here. It's just like there's a new villain in town. There's a new villain. Mr. Freeze. That's all we need to know, kids. Yeah, yeah. He appears and he says, There's a new villain. (laughs) He's appeared. And he's taken over the Gotham City Museum. He's calling himself. Mr. Free. I was just, it always made me laugh. The fact that he said there's a new villain is like, oh, another fucking one. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I could see Joel Schumacher on the bullhorn go, it's a cartoon. Because it's like, that yeah. is just yeah. what you'd have for the first setup of a cartoon. Just like, just set it up. No, yeah. no, no and then to go straight to, like, into this big, uh, the big first set piece of the movie, which is a great, like, it, it's, it's insane because it starts in, you know, this art heist and then ends up in like a rocket and then flying back down like we'll run through it but it's like this is a big finale worthy set piece essentially to kick things off and like i I, I rented this the other day to watch it again uh well this morning actually and you know, I you, not, mean you didn't own this already. I know, I know, I never do. And then <laughs> I like that, like box. It's like ten pounds. I know, and I like knocked the mouse within Scott. like a few minutes, and you know the little uh, timer came up, and it's like you know three minutes forty five seconds in or something of this whole two hour film, and it's like this big finale like set piece. It's like here's Freeze just walking in. Well, uh, I mean, I'm gonna say it right here. We start here with this opening set piece. And this opening set piece from the beginning of the movie does not finish until 15 minutes into the film. Yeah, right. And as much as, obviously, uh, and like you say, we will run through it, there's lots to mock in this opening sequence. At the same time, 
I think it's an incredibly exciting and impressive opening set piece to a yeah. movie. To have your opening 15 minutes of this film, this this packs a lot in. It's the classic, I mean, this is minutes. the cartoon thing. It's like, it doesn't it doesn't need to be a finale because it can kick things off. It's just the, the heroes show up, baddies doing bad stuff, they get in a tussle, you know, they're trying to escape. It, it, it covers all bases. So, yeah, basically, Mr. Freeze is trying to steal some diamonds, as, as he's trying to do most of the way through the film. He's already kind of freezing people left, right and centre with his freeze ray. And, I mean, Arnie, he is a formidable presence straight away. To the point where, obviously, Bane is in this film. And to me, I've always been a bit like, I don't quite know why you had Arnie as Mr. Freeze and Bane in the same movie. Because mm. Arnie is already a massive, formidable physical presence. And he is twatting security guards left, right and centre, throwing them about like rag dolls. And so it kind of seems odd almost that you have Bane in there as well. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, quick sidebar, which is actually a Trek connection. Very recently in the recurrence of the chat around this film on Twitter, I saw someone saying, wouldn't it have been amazing if Patrick Stewart played Mr. Freeze? And there was some like fan art of it. So it's like Patrick Stewart looking like animated series star Mr. Freeze. And it looked amazing. So I was like, wow, imagine, yeah, if you had Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze, Arnie as Bane and Thurman as Poison Ivy. Especially well, in that it's funny you should say that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't think I wouldn't pay in twenty-five million to play that part. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny you should say that because, uh, as I said, Hollywood Reporter published a very good oral history on this film uh, on the twentieth anniversary, and they actually talk about the Patrick Stewart thing because apparently it's been oh, was it a real thing for years? Mm. Yeah, that he was uh, the original choice to play Mister Freeze. Uh, to the point where apparently there's an early draft of the script where all of Mr. Freeze's lines are more Shakespearean in their kind of speech, are fall in line with a peace stew style actor. Does he say, um, make it snow? <laughs> <laughs> you know he what? I done. fucking bet he did. I bet he fucking did. <laughs> Well, I can but, check this draft as we go to see what's in it. I mean, at the moment, in this opening ice heist, it's still puns aplenty. In fact, one that I think well, is even in the film, where he freezes a guard and he taps on him and says, Copsicle. For its props, like, his freeze gun ray is still great effects. Great effects, yeah. To this yeah, day. I agree. Yeah, 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 I agree. It's a great practical effect that's like blended with a CGI or an mm-hmm. optical effect. But yeah, Joel Schumacher says, Peace Jew was never in the running. And he says it's a mm. wonderful idea of Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze. He agrees that it's a great idea, but he says he was never in the running for the role. So there you go. We can quash that right now. But yeah, Mr. Freeze is after the diamonds. And, you know, this is the moment I watched it and I went, you know what? The Frozen Museum aesthetic. This immediately you watch that and you go, this is completely in debt to the Adam West Batman 66 uh, TV series. The pop art visual stylings that they've got going on here is completely Adam West. And then you get Batman's big entrance smashing through the eyeglass window at the top. Very similar to the Batman Forever entrance. Your entrance was good. His was better. Batman lands and says, hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. And then he surfs down so the fucking chill. dinosaur. <laughs> lot of surfing in this film straight away again another callback to the adam west batman where of course he surfed against the joker in one of the episodes <laughs> and literally i've got to say right straight away the bit where he says hi freeze on batman amazing 
I think it's incredible. I love it. Because for me, I, I think George Cooney is a good Batman. I think he's fucking wicked, right? And he's I a good think, Batman, but he's a better Bruce Wayne. Yes, because Cooney, he is Bruce Wayne, isn't he? Yeah. Like, he literally is in real life. I mean, Clooney, I mean, he, he's gorgeous here, isn't he? Like, ridiculously so. So handsome, at his absolute height of ER, heartthrob fame. It's very much, he is the Adam West style, the mm-hmm. bright knight, rather than the dark knight. But he is a kind of reassuring presence for children. And I think any kid watching him as Batman would have loved him in the role. Yeah, That's no, my I, personal I, I totally agree. I think he's the he's like the perfect deadpan Batman. Like, like we said about everyone knowing what kind of film they're in it goes right through to, to Clooney I think he's you know you look at everything with the comedic lens like we do he's being hilariously deadpan a lot of the time especially in his banter with Robin and Freeze and you know just rocking up and going hi Freeze I'm Batman because a lot of the other lines are quite laboured but moments like this where it's just like he can just lean into his cool his inherent cool it really comes off great and moments later on where he has little zingers and one-liners he doesn't overplay anything he just kind of says it in his calm Clooney way and that makes it funny and that makes it reassuring so yes yeah reassuring i think is a good is a good word for his batman i find his batman comforting he's still the only oscar winning batman isn't he so what did cluntang win the oscar for siriana best supporting actor wait bales won oh okay for yeah, what Bale. fighter the fighter Damn it! <laughs> Sorry the to fact. shit on your trivia, Wills. <laughs> well, fucking fighter. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, of the anthology. <laughs> yeah, maybe when Kilmer won. <laughs> but Batman actually manages to grab the ice gun, right? And this is funny because I have really strong memories of the Batman and Robin trailer and really being excited about it, right? And there were certain bits in the trailer that really excited me. And one of them was Batman holding the ice gun. Because I was like, Batman holding a gun? That's a big deal. Batman hates guns. And so for him, holding a gun, I was like, that is a big deal. The other thing I found really exciting in the trailer was there's the moment where Bane, he lifts up the bat signal and like destroys it. That moment's in the trailer. And again, I was like, oh my God. Because (laughs) of course, the Bane I was thinking of was the Bane from the comics, which they more accurately reflected in The Dark Knight Rises when Tom Hardy played him, the Bane who breaks the bat, who's this super intelligent guy who gradually breaks everything to do with Batman. And I was like, holy shit, they're doing Bane right. Oh my God, it's going to be amazing. Of course, that was not the case. You still get 10 out of 10 though. You were were well aware of this going into it as a junior reporter. Yeah, that's very true. I'll give it it a pass. I was like, 10 out of 10, genius. Yeah. Uh, but even then, I do remember being disappointed with the Bane aspect. So, you know. The Bane representation here, probably the worst big screen Batman villain. It's just... But because he's a, yes. he's a tertiary element, you can get away with it a bit. He's very much henchman. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's a henchman. Uh, so Robin leaves a big Robin logo shape in the wall when he arrives, <laughs> to the point where you can see it in the background of other shots. So he comes through on his bike, which isn't Robin shaped, it's just a bike, but he somehow <laughs> leaves a massive Robin logo imprint on the wall as he comes through, which is ridiculous. And this is where, of course, we get Mr. Freeze going, kill the heroes, destroy, kill them. Yeah, well, I think this is Power Rangers' influence on this movie because that would be a massive hit on TV. And I think 
he just felt like one of the villains of the week on Power Rangers when he was yeah. doing that. Well, also, I think it's meant to be a bit of a callback to the Adam West series, where at the end of the first, because they were always two-parters, at the end of part one, it would always have the main villain going, Get them, boys! Get them, or it's curtains! And then suddenly all the henchmen would come out and start fighting Batman and Robin. I mean, it would be cool. No, if someone could make well. a bump whack edit of this film where they add in on screen effects for every punch throughout this whole film, I think that could just be the tipping point to make it purely the, the Adam West movie we never got. Destroy them! You get ice skate bat boots. So they've got them for every occasion. This is, again, a very Adam West-style thing where he's always got something for every single occasion. Um, Did anyone notice that the dinosaur seems to scream as its frozen head falls off? (laughs) No. Uh, Mr. Freeze, he freezes the dinosaur again to make it kind of crumble. And as the head falls off, you hear the dinosaur go... <laughs> like I'm not sure if it was just meant to be a sound effect of it falling apart, but it makes it sound like the dinosaur is actually going, oh, my head, <laughs> when it falls apart. Oh, the dinosaurs. Um, the Ice Age. I definitely want to talk about Freeze's spaceship. I was watching it, I was going, you know what, say what you like about it, but there's a lot of really impressive, practical filmmaking here. Yes, mm-hmm. there is some early bullshit CG, but there is some really, really great practical filmmaking on display. Especially uh, later yeah, on. completely. And obviously what happens is Batman manages to get in the ship with him and Mr. Freeze dispatches Batman quite easily and basically gives him freeze cuffs and leaves him to die in the ship. What's the numbers, Batman? For they're the harbingers of your doom. Can you feel it coming? The ice cold of space. Ah, at 30,000 feet, your heart will freeze and beat no more. And then Robin turns up in the ship. And I love the interplay between them. Where Robin kind of bounces in and Batman is kind of criticising him for the fact that he's come to save him. And he says, how about nice to see you? Thanks for saving my life. I fucking <laughs> love that in a photo. It's great. As I say, there's more surfing this film. Batman will surf on fucking anything he can get his hands on. They basically surf on the emergency doors with Robin screaming, And they kind of go all the way down into a snowstorm because Mr. Freeze has frozen this massive like smokestack that they kind of land in. And of course, does freeze Robin. Can you be cold, Batman? You have 11 minutes to thaw the bird. What will you do? Chase the villain? Or save the boy. <laughs> Your emotions make you weak. That's why this day is mine. <laughs> I'll kill you next time. And then Batman is forced to kind of let Mr. Freeze go so he can defrost Robin. And that's the end of the scene. And that is a fucking awesome opening set piece. Fucking quality. And then we cut to South Africa, where we get the introduction of Pamela Isley, played by Uma Thurman, obviously the alter ego of Poison Ivy. She's talking into a dictaphone, talking about her experiments, and she gives us exposition. And her personal note is basically, my boss is fucking insane, because her boss (laughs) is Jason Woodrow, played by John Glover, who went on, of course, mm-hmm. to play Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville, so he's got some comic book connections. Yeah. A little on John Glover, though. Going to make a film recommendation to everybody listening. 
52 pickup. It's a fucking great mid-80s, like neo-noir, starring Roy Shiley or Chief Brody from Jaws. But John Glover plays the villain in this movie, which is like sleaze on top of trash, on top of sleaze, and like, he is amazing in it. It's a blackmail scheme gone wrong. We have to have positive identification. We gotta get some strong evidence. But there's no way in the world, once the story breaks, that you're gonna keep it off the six o'clock news. Harry Mitchell, successful businessman, loving husband, a man who has now become the perfect target. Sit down, sport. Look, Mitch, you've seen some of this before. Stuff your girlfriend shop where your wife thought you were at a convention in Miami. Mitch, you're in very serious trouble. You pay us 105 grand a year for the rest of your life. No! They're ruthless. Cops find a body with no clothes on, a gun, your prints all over it. Desperate. They got an airtight case against me. It's my gun. I'm scared, Mitch. Yeah! The only thing they didn't count on was Mitch having a plan of his own. I want to deal only with you. How much did the man say he was going to give you? I'm going to pay them 52000 I know. They're plotting me out. He's a murderer. I'll meet you at 7, Flint. On the button. I'll be there. Roy Scheider, Anne Margaret, and Vanity in John Frankenheimer's suspense thriller, 52 Pickup, from acclaimed novelist Elmore Leonard's gripping bestseller. All the kind of usual twists of the genre, it takes the opposite direction of what you think, think is gonna happen, and it's just a cat and mouse game between like the blackmailer and the blackmailee. But my God, 52 Pickup is amazing and a great showcase for John Glover's talents. You think he's better known to most people in uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch where he played <laughs> what was meant to be like a Donald Trump archetype, but actually which is far too charming to be anything like Donald Trump. That concludes John Glover quality. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Glover is great here because I think oh, he he's knows so funny. what film he's in. He, he's completely playing up to the rafters on this movie. And he is basically performing these diabolical experiments on human beings. You know, basically experimenting with Venom, which is his creation of what he's going to be pumped into Bane to make him yeah. the Bane he becomes. Bane is very Frankenstein's monster here because we get this kind of little weed brought out who's chained to the operating table and then he pumps in the venom into him. Mm. He's got an entire rogues gallery of kind of despots plus a mystery bidder who are bidding on Bane's services. Uma Thurman, Pamela Risey is kind of spying on what's going on. We get Bane, the transformation. Looks like a very odd effects now with him bulking up, essentially, into Jeep Swenson, who played Bane, who was kind of just a weightlifter, a wrestler. Uh, apparently, at the time, Jeep Swenson apparently had the biggest biceps on record in the world, uh, which I can totally buy, because he's mm. ridiculously oh, huge God, yeah. in this movie. Oh, God, yeah, they're all real, then. Wow. Oh, yeah, they're, they're real, baby. They're real. <laughs> Obviously... He's got a lot of makeup on him and stuff. The, the biceps were real, and sadly, he died literally a month after this film came out. He died on the 18th yeah. of August, 1997, uh, 40 years old, of massive heart failure. But yeah, he's he's been here physically. He certainly has it. Maybe in the actual kind of role itself, maybe he hasn't got quite the juice of uh, Tom Hardy, but, but there you are. 
but you know he does cut an imposing presence and of course he immediately kind of loses his shit and starts throwing people around and everything like that it all goes crazy and uh, Jason Woodrow escapes uh, and sees Pamela Risley there Dr. Isley! Welcome to my parlour! He's basically in love with Pamela She is not impressed and gives him short shrift and says he's kind yep. of a complete maniac and she's basically going to report him and make sure he never gets a job again. You know, sadly, he's not good at rejection. This is just incredible. He, Glover is amazing. He kind of throws Pamela onto the ground. He pushes tons of different chemicals onto her and everything like that while making really pathetic music. He's like, Ugh! So it's, he the way, it's the way he screeches like her. a millisecond after he finishes his line. Like that's, that's the mark of a professional. I love that guy. <laughs> Meanwhile, we return to the Batcave where Batman and Robin are watching a You've Been Framed video with Mr. Freeze falling into a vat of kind of liquid ice. Batman even can't resist the opportunity to make a pun out of this poor man's situation. After his wife contracted a rare disease, McGregor's syndrome, he hoped to freeze her in a cryogenic sleep until he could find a cure. Now, here's where everything goes north. Learn the tragic past of Mr. Freeze in this moment through some amazing CCTV footage. Well, I, I love again that the kids' movie logically exposition here where Cleaney just goes, the liquid is 30 below. He survives somehow. <laughs> yeah, that, that's he, all you he need. survives somehow. Somehow. That's all you need. That's all you need. We get another moment of Alfred clearly being secretly sick. In this moment, they're talking about this. Like, he's explaining the origins of Mr. Freeze. And Alfred just fucks off as if he's bored with Batman's story. Like, oh, I can't volunteer at the end of this. And then we cut back to him when they're kind of shouting for Alfred. And he's like, oh, just coming, sir. Like, yeah, he's like, just dying quietly over here, sir. Don't mind me. Because, of course, he's hiding the fact that he's so unwell. And this is where we start building up the tension between Batman and Robin, because Batman thinks that Robin is foolhardy and reckless, and he's kind of worried about him. And this is what I've talked about in terms of this doesn't work because Chris O'Donnell looks so close in age to George Clooney that it's just like, why is he treating him like a kid? It doesn't make any sense at all. And then uh, <laughs> there's a bit where Jason Woodrow promises to send Bane by mail to the highest bidder. I can, can't imagine the amount of postage it will require to send Jeep Swenson through the post. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, we're send him out by overnight mail. I was like, yeah, hang on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we finally, we get Uma Thurman rising from the grave. She looks pretty great. Uh, I don't get what the fuck she's banging on about when she says like, her blood is now fucking chlorophyll or whatever. Like I'm just like... No. Yeah, this is a fantastic reintroduction to a villain because, yeah, she's back from the dead. She's about to get revenge. She's playing it all sultry. She's, like, listing her new features whilst seducing Woodrow and then, and my lips are poison for right at the last minute. Poison. Poison ivy. Poison. <laughs> That's a very good impression. And then, of course, as she's smashing the place up, she sees a beaker that says Wayne Industries on that. And she says it in a way as though she goes, hmm. Yeah. 
Wayne Industries as if she didn't know she worked for Wayne Industries. <laughs> she calls on Bane, who's in exactly the same position as he was 10 minutes ago, going, Bane! <laughs> like, you know, in the upper room. Yeah, he, he has one line the entire place. film, is just <laughs> saying his name again and again. Yeah, he's, he's definitely one of the weak points of this movie. I mean, well, he's very strong, but uh, he's certainly a weak link. Bane has some learning difficulties in this film, doesn't he? Because all he can ever do is just repeat the words that other people say, basically like, bomb! But we go into Mr. Freeze's headquarters, and this is where we get the major connection to Christmas, which is, ah, Mr. White Christmas, ah, Mr. Snow, but I'll sing, sing! <laughs> and the henchmen are all being made to sing along to Mr. Freeze's Christmas song and he's there, he's got his dressing gown, he's wearing his polar bear slippers, he's oh, he's got his ball cap on as he refused to shave for this film. We also get a cameo from Vivia A. Fox, who I had no idea was Vivia A. Fox mm-hmm. until this watch. So you got the bride and Vanita Green, two of the Bill. Fox Force 5 or Deadly Viper yeah. squad from Kill Bill in this one movie. So even though they never appear in a scene together in this film, Kill Bill Volume 1 is essentially Batman and Robin reunion, basically, <laughs> we're saying. Yeah, yeah Vivier Fox basically plays the sort of Drew Barrymore uh, gangster's mole role that they had yeah. in Batman Forever, where they kind of modelled on the villain themselves. Well, her, her little exchange here features maybe the most amount of puns in as short a time as I can find in this movie. I've got the bit of script here, and I think most of this is in here. She says, Freezy, I'm feeling hot. Then she says, I'd weather blizzards to have you. He says, to be frozen, a life of perpetual isolation. She says, why don't we turn up the heat? And he says, you're skating on thin ice. My passion thaws for my bride alone. She says, forget your frosty femme. These lips are wet and ready to get frostbite. He says, hop away, little bunny, before I cool your jets. And then uh, I wonder how cold I can get my shower. Frosty. (laughs) Oh, there's definitely more puns in the script. And then she says, she says, how? Talk about the cold shoulder. And that's not even here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And also when she says, I'm feeling hot, he goes, I find that unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. See, this is where Mr. Free sells himself. He, he's a good guy, very faithful to his wife. You can't mm-hmm. say that against him. Like, yeah, he's, he's totally loyal to his bride, despite the fact yeah, that she's I, a I fucking the thing is, we all know as soon as she wakes up and looks at him, she's just going to scream her head off and run away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so true, so true. This is it, the sympathetic um, villain. So, this, is, uh, this is great stuff. Mr. Freeze is a very popular and uh, sexy character. So all those uh, women uh, are surrounding him. But anytime they make a move on him, any kind of a sexual move, uh, or sexy move, he tells them that his, uh, you know, passion thaws for his bride alone. He really is a man of principles. He is the whole thing that he does. And as evil as he is, but it's all for one thing, and that is for his wife. And, you know, you can laugh at Arnie's very simplistic way of approaching the character and then how it's on the page, but it's like, this is basic stuff that they that they nail. You know what he's trying to do. You know why he's trying to do it. I don't want it for I think the only villain in this film really is John Glover, and he's dead in 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah, Uma Thurman's just trying to save the planet. Yeah, yeah, both sympathetic villains, Bane's really. just a victim. And yeah, so he's trying to save 
his poor wife, who's a victim of McGregor's syndrome, which is a made-up disease for this film. And he's got a sort of cryo-type chamber, and he's trying to find a cure for her. And he believes that kind of the diamonds, if he gets all the diamonds, his freeze ray and everything, like, he'll somehow, that'll help. But who's, who's to say? And this is where we get the introduction of Alicia Silverstone in her schoolgirl mm. uniform, oh 19 God. when she was filming this role, by the way. She's a peak stardom here, Silverstone. One more line from the previous scene, which is in the script that can't have been in the movie. The scene ends with Freeze saying, nothing frustrates a man like a frigid wife. <laughs> Was that in there? <laughs> That's not in the movie. That's amazing. Okay. That's amazing. That's okay, amazing. continue. Um... <laughs> So basically, we're at Wayne Manor. The doorbell goes. Alfred doesn't answer it because he's fucking slacking. Uh, so Robin has to go ahead and answer the door. And he finds Alicia Silverstone kind of standing on something, trying to reach uh, kind of like the... Be- oh, I don't know what she's trying to do, but it's basically... Yeah, I, I think that they missed a trick here. Like, they just put the bell really low, so she had to bend over. That's anyway objective her anymore. <laughs> I personally, when I saw this film, when I was 12, I was completely in love with Alicia Silverstone. I'll, I'll say that. You know, I was feeling yeah. exactly uh, the same way as Chris O'Donnell in this moment. Paul, you don't seem convinced. Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, it's not my type at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Silverstone. I think this Paul is nice. It was more my vibe. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, you were ahead of your time there. But Alicia Silverstone, and this is astonishing to me, this was in the oral history from Hollywood Reporter, right? At the time the film came out, and I don't remember this, probably because I just wasn't paying attention to things like this at the time, she was horrendously fat-shamed by the press, right? Because apparently it came out that on the set of the film, uh, during filming, she put on a few pounds, and she was struggling to fit into the Batgirl suit, which is obviously incredibly kind of tiny and everything like that. She had to wear a corset and stuff like that. And the storyboard artist for this film, a guy called Time Burgard, and I want to name and shame him because he acted like an absolute twat. He drew an unflattering cartoon satirising her weight gain, basically, on the set of the film and posted this up on his, like, desk. And at one point, the costume designer, Bob Ringwood, came across and saw it and kicked off and went absolutely mad at him. It was like, she's trying so hard. How can you be so cruel? Everything like that. And literally in the press, though, they were absolutely annihilating her. She appeared at the 1996 Oscars. And apparently, you know, that's when she started beginning to put on a little bit. And, you know, I, I should stress when I say put on a little bit of weight. I mean, mm, like, she Hollywood was 19 standards. when, yeah. 19 like normal girl, film. basically. A normal fucking... Yeah, basically. I, I look at her and I think, oh, Buffy season one. Like, you know, a, a little bit of puppy fat for a young teenage mm-hmm. girl. Kind of thing, like, you know. And literally, some critics literally quoted as saying at Oscars, oh, is this babe or babe? You know, about her parents at night. It's just disgusting, right? She got a really hard time. Joel Schumacher had, had to defend her in the press. And just basically be like, you know, why are you being so cruel? Uh So many girls have anorexia and bulimia and it's because of fucking bullshit like this. And from that, you know, I just got to say, it's absolutely ridiculous. 
I mean, she is, you know, be ridiculous anyway, but she is clearly, you know, yeah, I've never once watched this film and girl. thought, oh, I could, I bet there was some kind of weight scandal over this. You'd, you'd never think yeah. it. And good on, good on Schumacher <laughs> for standing up for it. Because, you know, after he died, one of the great things that came out was everybody sharing really great Schumacher stories. And there were some fantastic anecdotes online. And he seems yeah. like an yeah. absolute legend. Yeah, completely. I, I think, I just want to say that it's absolute bullshit. Uh, she looks great. And uh, Alfred has failed to answer the door. And when he appears to Bruce Wayne, he, he apologises profusely. And Bruce Wayne basically says, look, it, it's fine. No apology necessary. But don't let it happen again, you old fuck. We're fucking fired. <laughs> I will throw you out uh, on the street. You think we're family? I'll drop you. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that Barbara Gordon, who, well, Barbara, uh, not Barbara Gordon, she's Barbara Gordon in the comics here. She's obviously not Barbara Gordon. They they change it from her being the daughter of Commissioner Gordon to being the niece of Alfred to make it kind of closer because obviously Commissioner Gordon's not has got as big a role in this. It turns out it's Uncle Alfred and she's on holiday. Now, I could work... She's at a place called Oxbridge Academy, right? Now, it's obviously... They say it's Alfred's alma mater, so it's obviously meant to be in England. But there isn't a place called Oxbridge Academy in Britain. That's not a real place. At the end, obviously, they're thinking of Oxford University and stuff, but this is Oxbridge Academy because mm. she's still in a school uniform. Yes, yeah, so Oxford and like Cambridge unranged. combined for the fake kind of yeah, Hollywood basically, version basically. of an English school. Yeah. Um, the, the only Oxbridge Academy that exists is based in South Africa. So she's just come across from Poison Ivy's science lab straight to here. And what I could work out was, right, she's maybe on holiday... Why is she in her fucking school uniform? What, did she leave school, <laughs> get straight on a plane, get on that, travel all the way there? I'm like, how long has she been in that school uniform? She must smell pretty fucking ripe by now. And this is where the dates don't start to make sense to me because she says that she is the daughter of Alfred's sister. Now, Alfred in this is pretty fucking old, let's face it. And she comes to visit him to tuck him in late at night. And we see Alfred, he's by a computer, and he has a photo of her mum next to the computer. Now, the photo looks like a photo of, like, a 1940s Hollywood starlet or something. And I'm just like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. That photo looks like it was made, it taken about 1940. If we say she's, like, <laughs> 20 there, by the time she has Alicia Silverstone, yeah. who's clearly meant to be, like, 17 here in 1997... That means she'd be. This woman would probably be like sixty in nineteen eighty. I'm like, this is fucking insane. I don't know what's <laughs> going on here. The dates do not add up. And Alfred is looking for his brother. I'm trying to find my brother, your uncle, Wilfred. He's first butler to the Maharaja of Mirajanpur, but Mirajanpur is a floating court. It travels through India. Oh, I remember Mom getting postcards. So Wilfred can be rather difficult to find. Well, I don't suppose they have fax machines on elephants. Yeah, she says no fax machines on top of elephants, I guess. I'm just like, right, do you think India isn't connecting up? Just like such a Westerner's point of view of the rest of well, the world. Well, this is such a strange like, element to this whole movie. Like, I think you and me discovered this when we rewatched this in At the Prince Charles, where it's like, a, this, is a, this is the main subplot to the film outside of the two villain threads. 
And it's there's a lot of time devoted to the story of like an old guy basically dying and the ethics of butlering. It's a very strange thing to put so much attention to in a kid's film. And it really does stand yeah. out, whether it's, you know, a swan song for Michael Goh or whatever. But it's it's just such strange... Every time it cuts to this stuff, because there's a lot of it in here and it carries on throughout. There's loads of it, yeah. It's Remains like, of the Bane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like an episode of Donton Abbey. Uh, <laughs> so we find out that basically Alicia Silverstone's Barbara was kind of cooing over the motorbikes earlier, but then goes, oh, no, I don't know anything about bikes, all of a sudden. And actually, it's revealed that that is all a ruse because actually she's really into riding motorbikes and she's kind of secretly sneaking off at night to kind of ride some motorcycles. And what we don't know is Robin is watching her. So he's kind of, he's caught on to her. It's the next day and we're heading to Gotham Observatory where we've got Bane in a fedora and trench coat driving. I love uh, his incognito look. You know, the MCU characters, they've yeah. got their hoodie and baseball cap, but Bane, just stick him in a fedora and no one will know. Well, it's very The Thing from Fantastic Four and also Raphael from the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ah. of just wearing like a trench coat and hat and that will just be fine. Yeah. Will come Even though he's got his full gown. In front of that. Gotham Observatory Bane. And step on it. Step. We get to Gotham Observatory, which is this insane gothic architecture. And yeah, this is pure Schumacher in terms of these huge, muscly yeah. statues just holding on to things. So this is a gigantic <laughs> man. He's holding on to the actual observatory. He's, well, the, he's absolutely insane. The whole I mean, design of the Gotham in this film, which is obviously carrying on from what Burton put down and then what Schumacher carried on, in my head, it's almost like you never see even street level. It's always a city that's got about 80 stories high and everything's in the sky. It feels very sky captain in the world of tomorrow or something. Because, yeah, you've got this big yes. building being held in the sky. You've got a car chase that happens along the arms of these statues in the sky. Like, everything's in the sky. There's very much that's actually on the floor. And it's the most separate from a real-world city that Gotham ever feels, for sure. And at Gotham Observatory, Bruce Wayne is confronted by Pamela Risley, who has lots of things to say. I have here... A proposal showing how Wayne Enterprises can immediately cease all actions that toxify our environment. Forget the stars. Look here at the Earth, our mother, our womb. She deserves your loyalty and protection. And yet, you spoil her lands, poison her oceans, blacken her skies. You're killing her. Well, your intentions are noble, but no diesel fuel for heat, no coolants to preserve food. Millions of people would die of cold and hunger alone. Acceptable losses in the battle to save the planet. People come first, Dr. Eisen. Mammals. A day of reckoning is coming. That's right. The same plants and flowers that saw you crawl from the primordial soup will reclaim this planet and there will be no one to protect you. <laughs> now, obviously, in retrospect, 23 years later, we can confirm that Pamela Isley is completely right in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Like, Bruce Wayne comes across as positively Trumpian in this moment. The scientists, including the scientists and everyone gathered there, all laugh at her like she's an absolute maniac. 
But now what we know is she's completely right. She's essentially ahead of her time. She's completely right. They're completely wrong. Gossip Gertie actually says, basically, we don't have to worry about global warming because Batman and Robin protect us. It's like, what? From global fucking <laughs> yeah, warming? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Fucking idiot. And we also get introduced to Elle McPherson in this scene, mm-hmm. uh, who plays basically Bruce Wayne's love interest in this film. You can tell that Joel is not remotely interested in this romance subplot. I mean, this is after Batman Forever where we had Chase Meridian, Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman, which was a big romantic plot line. This is completely sidelined. Isn't yeah, she's just kind of there the as a girlfriend. It's an excuse to get a lot of reaction shots of Clooney kind of looking awkwardly sheepish when asked about commitment and marriage. And it's like, oh, you see? Because, you know, Clooney's the most eligible bachelor. And it's weird to think of him being a married man now because for so long he was, wasn't he? Like, Mr. Single Guy. And that's right, you're saying, you know, this Bruce Wayne yeah. is basically him. And it's, like, really playing into that. The romance that Joel is interested in is Batman and Robin. Yeah. rather than Bruce Wayne and Elle McPherson. So, yeah. And Bruce Wayne says to Pamela Isley that actually he's having a fundraiser for the Botanical Gardens. And he says, you know, just a few people try to do the little they can for the world's plant life. Well, that isn't going to fucking help, mate, because it's got nothing to do with the issues that she's talking about. You know, it's basically like having a fundraiser for Q fucking gardens. So, like, that. <laughs> completely ridiculous. So, we find Mr. Freeze watching a kind of home video of his wedding and also his wedding night. There's a bit where it's like in their bedroom. And I'm like, who was shooting this? <laughs> Mr. Freeze. Oh, no. <laughs> and Mr. Freeze freezes his henchman and says, I hate when people talk during the movie. Uh, and I'm on Mr. Freeze's side. I think anyone who speaks in the cinema should be instantly frozen. Yeah. So all, all the villains here are doing the right thing. die of hyperthermia. <laughs> we go to the botanical gardens. Yes. Just, it never strikes me as being botanical gardens, except just a massive scene with lots of people dancing really in really random costumes yes uh, slightly problematic black native dancers 23 yeah. years later we find out that uh, number one bruce wayne said in the previous scene that he was donating some things to this he isn't he's lending this big heart of isis diamond uh so you know since then i'm sure it's been renamed uh much like isis the dog in downton abbey killed off because uh, it's relation <laughs> wait a sec like to, to a to a botanical gardens like it's like the, i'm donating an orchid i can get but like i'm donating a diamond like well this is very convoluted because what he is doing is he's donating the diamond so a girl can wear it around her neck while they go on a date with one of the people who are donating money so it's an auction to yeah. go on a date with like a model wearing this diamond around their neck my favorite <laughs> guy in this entire Cigar movie waver. immediately says an open forty thousand dollars for the lovely magnolia uh, you know, he, he can't <laughs> wait to have Magnolia in his bed. $30,000 he's willing to bid. But then yeah, everything... Keep, keep the ice, just like... <laughs> yeah, 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 like, yeah. like <laughs> Keep the ice, just give me the ice queen, baby. And I'll fall out with all my money. Then we get attracted <laughs> by a sexy gorilla with some nice hands. And uh, I always found this very, very odd because basically what happens is you get these two gorillas appear and they're kind of knocking all the other dancers out of the way. 
and then one of them starts doing sexy dancing while still in the gorilla costume. And it cuts back to the audience. And before Poison Ivy even sprays her pheromone dust over them, they're all transfixed. I'm like, why would they be? Just at the moment. Like security? <laughs> Did you recognise the song playing during uh, Ivy's dance here? Yes, yeah, it's Poison Ivy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a song by the coasters called Poison Ivy. I, I genuinely didn't realise until this watch of it. Well, yeah, same um, here because and then um, found out. there's a band I really like called Bleached and they put out a really good cover of it on an EP ages ago of this song. So I was listening to it going, oh, this is Poison Ivy. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it turns out the sexy gorilla is Poison. Poison Ivy. And she's got some very drag queen chic going down. She looks like she's auditioning for RuPaul's Drag Race in this film, I think. Basically, she turns up onto the stage and immediately starts playing off Batman and Robin. Shantae, she stays. Immediately starts playing Batman and Robin off against each other. She refers to Batman as the geriatric bat. Clooney is only 36 at this point, (laughs) I should point out. Fuck Um, me, I'm like... A year younger than Clooney in this You're movie. Yeah. Batman yeah. And Batman Robin age for... You're the same age as Clooney in Batman and Robin. How's that feel? Uh, well, no, I'm 35. But I'm almost... I'm yeah, almost he would have been Clo- shooting. He, be, he would have been shooting at 35. Right? That's true. That's true. Yeah, I would have been shooting at 35, uh, receiving prank uh, letters from Arnold Schwarzenegger at this point. Uh, okay, explain. Well, apparently you- Arnie sent George Clooney some weird prank pieces of mail during the production of this film where he was like Mr. Freeze is coming to get you Batman <laughs> 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 bit, bit more playful than like I just be like you know, I have Leto. your daughter like uh... <laughs> no not quite that bad not quite that bad but <laughs> Poison Ivy <laughs> plays Batman and off against each other which basically leads to a bidding war which is ridiculous because only Batman can actually afford it one million dollars two million you don't have it Three million. I'll borrow it from you. Four million. Five million. That's a utility belt, not a money belt. Six million. Seven million. Never leave the cave without it. But Batman kind of seals the deal by having the Bat credit card in his utility belt with an expiry date of forever. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there is, there's what no bank is that. this? Once you pull out the Trump card of the Bat credit card, there is no beating that. But before Batman and Robin can duke it out for Poison Ivy, we get the arrival of Mr. Freeze, who, of course, has heard this diamond's about. That's been the whole point. They try to lure Mr. Freeze there, and he descends on the cool party. And, you know, suddenly there's a big old fight between everyone at this stage. But, of course, Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy do meet in this moment. And, of course, Poison Ivy's charms do not work on the cold-hearted, and she cannot seduce Mr. Freeze. But Batman and Robin chase after Mr. Freeze, and we get an amazing chase down the gigantic bicep of one of the big statues in Gotham City. So, again, another case of these ridiculously Adonis uh, statues that Schumacher adorns all over the city. You know, they're chasing down the kind of arm of this statue. And Batman is once again getting very, very het up about the idea of Robin endangering himself and decides to switch off his motorbike to kind of stop him chasing after Which is surely Mr. more Fruit. dangerous. Yeah, this, this is exactly what I thought. Stops him from making the jump like... and he just plummets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I was like, right, this is definitely more dangerous <laughs> than just allowing him to do the job. The shot well, where Robin's bike slows to a standstill on the end of one finger and then it pans across a little bit more as the Batmobile whooshes off the middle finger. Great fucking shot. Really great mm, shot. Mm. And he goes, no! Yeah, I'm that so ruins annoyed. it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! I'm always frustrated that we don't get a Batman Mr. Freeze fight sequence oh, here. Yeah. Because Batman literally just kind of crashes into Mr. Freeze's vehicle and then next second he kind of pulls up his cape. Mr. Freeze is just yeah, unconscious. Yeah, that's, like, oh. that's such a weird shot, that. It's like it's like they forgot to do a fight scene. And so, like, let's just cut to the end. And he's posing for the camera, basically. It's like a, it's like a, like a game hunter standing over a felled lion, <laughs> just for the, posing for the camera. It's completely bizarre. I'm really, really not sure about that. <laughs> We're getting lots of Alfred flashbacks in this movie. And this is kind of a follow-on from Batman Forever, where we kept getting flashbacks to Bruce Wayne finding his father's diary and stuff like that. Whereas here we get flashbacks of Bruce Wayne and Alfred's relationship. So we get lots of moments of Bruce Wayne running on the corridor and tripping over and then Alfred being like, oh dear sir, let me help you. And kind of reading to him. Well, when no, you're going to realise why we fall, asked Bruce. Well, yeah, it's actually because the lines that he says in this are very, very close to what we get yeah. in Batman Begins. Why do we fall to learn to pick ourselves up? Very, very similar kind of line. So, you know, I think it's obvious here that Nolan, his main inspiration was Batman and Robin. I can't think of anything more bizarre, but presumably he saw the last shot at Batman before he came along at some point. But I can't picture Nolan sitting down with popcorn being like, time for some Batman yeah, and Robin. Yeah, was like, mm, on his IMAX screen, yeah. like, blown up. Batman and Robin on the IMAX 4K. I like, yes, I'm not too sure. But you've got to think, he's got to have seen it yeah. at some point. I'd love to know Nolan's thoughts on Batman and Robin. I think that would be very, very interesting. So obviously this drives a real rift between Batman and Robin. Bruce Wayne talks to Alfred and says, you know, is it my way or the highway? Alfred is like, yeah, it is. You're really hard work. Uh, you know, I often thought about quitting on you. And uh, meanwhile, we get Silverstone once again try kind of run off in the middle of the night on her motorbike. And this time, Robin tries to stop her and she gives him a fucking kung fu flip. Like, I Takes him down. So that's quite fun. And meanwhile, Mr. Freeze has been moved to Arkham Asylum. He's brought in in a giant freezer. Vintage. Vintage chic freezer that he gets brought in and then Arnie delivers for my money one of the best speeches of his entire career uh, when he gets brought into that cell uh, which I believe I, I seem to remember opened the trailer uh, to the film was this big speech from Mr Freeze where he kind of lays it down to the guards but instantly is undercut by the fact that he tries to escape from the guards incapacitates them but then finds that unfortunately he can't survive outside the cold zone and the <laughs> gloating guards can't survive outside the cold zone freezy we get some real overacting from arnie here i mean i you know he's kind of channeling uh al pacino at the end of godfather part three uh where his daughter <laughs> dies great big open mouth and the eyes are Arr! 
you know, the raging ball music comes in as he's trying to crawl <laughs> outside of the cold zone. Meanwhile, Poison Ivy is trying to find a new kind of bad guy headquarters for herself. And she comes across some very neon bugs uh, in this way. I think this None is more one of the shots that you picked out, Matt, for your four shots from a film that you think is a masterpiece <laughs> on is. Twitter today. I was like, how many colours can I squeeze <laughs> into this thing? There's all of them in this one shot, so... <laughs> This is very much, you know, Joel Schumacher's idea of a tough gang, isn't it? <laughs> but they get taken out by Bane very, very quickly, and she's got herself a new hideout. And meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is having a romantic dinner with Elle McPherson, who, you know, I thought when I was watching this scene, she must have dumped his ass after he refers to her as Ivy, because he's kind of fantasising <laughs> about Poison Ivy while they're uh, kissing. She goes, who's Ivy? She's already laid it out to him that, like, you know, she needs some commitment. Yeah, because then doesn't so even go, oh, I wish I knew. And it's like, oh, so you're not even denying or thinking about someone else. You, in fact, you would rather be talking yeah, yeah, to Ivy like, right oh, now. Oh, I wish I knew. Because if I did, I'd be with her rather <laughs> yeah. than you, stupid bitch. <laughs> like, yeah. L the body McPherson. She's not going to wait around. Is she, at the end of the day, you know, being treated like this? Do, do you I, I think she's so. being but dubbed she... in this movie? Because it sounds like it. Uh, like, I, I wonder if it's a case of, you know, so. she's no actress, she's much more of a model, and whether Schumacher was like, yeah, we'll get someone just to be overly whispery and sultry for this, because it sounds very out of place. I mean, I'll say this. Her performance is far superior to her performance in her guest appearances on Friends. Ah. Uh. She's far better in this film. And that's saying something, because, I mean, it's not like she's doing a Nick Shakespearean performance in this movie, but she's definitely better than she was in Friends. So, you know, who's who's to say? I don't think so, at least. But Alicia Silverstone's Barbara has made it to her rendezvous of this big underground biker race ran by Coolio, Gotham's Paradise. He's there. Basically, she has this big biker underground illegal drag race through, you know, the underground of Gotham. I guess they must be in the Narrows or something a like that. A different kind of drag race than this film's used to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too right, too right. <laughs> and of course, Robin has turned up as well and is also going through the uh, obstacles. And they've got some very funny obstacles on this hardcore biker race. So some of the obstacles they face are barrels of glitter... Empty boxes and balloons. It's very, very hardcore. Big stakes. Uh, but eventually, you know, it gets a bit more badass. And suddenly there's kind of flames. And actually it reveals the race route ends at an unfinished bridge. They fly off the end of the bridge. But luckily, Dick manages to save her from doom as she's about to fall off there. And, you know, I always think in this moment, and, you know, I think Joel would appreciate uh, this kind of faux pas, that Dick is going to drop his helmet on uh, Barbara at this point. <laughs> oh, the Dick helmet. He's holding on to her and he takes off his motorbike helmet at that moment. I'm just like, man, why are you taking off that helmet now? Why yeah. not wait? It's clearly that, obvious who uh, it is, point. Dick. Uh, Come on. Yeah. Barbara says she's been biking, she's been doing this for five years. Now, 
Alicia Silverstone was 19 when she was filming this, but clearly the character's meant to be underage in a schoolgirl uniform. So, so if we say she's 17, what, she's been doing these like illegal bike races since she was 12. There's, <laughs> like, again, another kind of weird age thing. It's like I'm super young, but I'm also a seasoned pro at this very specific and dangerous thing. <laughs> and this is where we get into what you were talking about, Matt, which is the comments on uh, Alfred being a poor butler. Barbara turns around to Dick and says she wants to take Alfred away from this dismal life of servitude to which Robin is like what are you talking about and then Alfred appears and goes a sandwich sir (laughs) (laughs) he's nothing but a slave you see (laughs) he's obviously completely oblivious to the fact that Alfred is living this life of servitude but the problem is of course is Alfred does love living with them. Alfred is a total Carson in Downton <laughs> Abbey where he, he wants to devote his life to his kind of masters. Like, you know, that that's what he thinks it's is a good idea. Silverstone showing up and being like, uh, I'll save you, uncle. And he's like, I don't need saving. Like, no, I'm here to save you. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to leave. I'm not interested. Alfred's happy with it. It, it is fine. But it is revealed that Alfred is dying and he is dying of McGregor's syndrome, the fake disease that Mr. Freeze's wife is also dying from. But we then cut back to Arkham and we actually get a view into the Arkham property locker and we get to see the Riddler and Two-Face's costumes. Ooh, I missed that. In the property locker, actually making intrinsic link back to Batman Forever. And from that, we can read that Riddler and Two-Face are presumably in Arkham. Of course, it doesn't make sense because Two-Face died at the end of Batman Forever. Well, they just took his clothes. It's fine. Riddler, at least. (laughs) I prefer this film to Forever because it's actually true Mm. to itself. Tommy Lee Jones absolutely derails that film, Forever. In terms of his performance, is so excruciating. And I love Tommy Lee Jones, but he is, like, trying to overact, but he's just not... It's just not his style. Mm. Carrie kind of like at least carries it because you because he is just being Carrie, but Lee Jones just is annoying. Whereas like at least Schwarzenegger and Furman are kind of like in this film and feel a part of this. It actually is totally correct for what is being achieved. So in fact, this is like the consistent product. Whereas Forever is like a mm-hmm. mishmash and therefore doesn't come quite together. Apparently, the reason he's overacting so terribly is because he felt he had to bring his performance up to Jim Carrey's level. And as you say, he's he's not suited to that, whereas Jim Carrey is. And I would say that even Arnie is. Arnie is someone who's already been used to kind of performing slightly tongue-in-cheek with his kind of action roles before this, with all his one-liners and stuff. So he kind of fits into this. And Uma Thurman, I think, is just good enough that she can kind of, you know, easily slide into this funny role as it is but yeah Tommy Lee Jones it doesn't it doesn't work one man is born a hero his brother a coward babies starve politicians grow fat holy men are martyred and junkies grow legion why 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 luck blind stupid simple doodah clueless so basically, Poison Ivy is breaking Mr. Freeze out of Arkham Asylum with the help of Bane. They get into his cell and give him back his kind of costume. I mean, that costume must take a long time to put on <laughs> because it cuts back to them. He's kind of fully dressed. And I was like, by this point, there's like a million guards outside the cell. And I thought, well, no wonder. He's I mean, probably been there about two and a half hours putting on that fucking costume. Like, Jesus Christ. 
and then they do escape from there and Bane when he leaps out of the window he's like a big baby <laughs> we're then at Freeze's hideout uh, where Batman and Robin are investigating along with Commissioner Gordon Commissioner Gordon shows them a photo of Ivy and Bane at the airport which is kind of like black and white journalist style photo of Poison Ivy and Bane arriving at the airport with Bane it's ridiculous because it's like <laughs> Who is, like, <clears throat> paparazzi anybody who arrives on a plane? <laughs> so, hot scoop! It's like a photo from Casablanca <laughs> or something with Bane as Humphrey Bogart. It's absolutely bizarre, that moment. And so, basically, we get Batman starting to cottoning on to the fact that Poison Ivy is actually a baddie. Well, Robin calls her a bad guy, and he says, bad, yes, guy, no. Batman is very gender-normative in this film, I must say. But we also get a real carry-on Batman moment where they uh, start talking about Poison Ivy and they say, nice stems though, buds are good too. Jesus Christ, this is really... That's like the nadir for me, I think, that moment where I go like that. Even for me, this has gone too far. Matron, take them away! Mr Freeze attacks, freezing the whole place. Whenever I see this film, there's always moments which I've never seen before, never spotted before, which can't pop out. And this is the moment I was mentioning to Matt where a guard actually yeah, says, Yeah, I noticed this. My yeah. lungs, they're freezing! <laughs> um, well, it feels a bit like uh, something Sam Raimi would do, yeah. Army of Darkness. It's like, you know, where you just like, get like some guy a quarter and gets knocked in some guy's face. He says, My eyes, my eyes! <laughs> <laughs> Joel is always trying to make girls have a rubber fetish in these movies. Uh, you'll remember in Batman Forever, Chase Meridian kind of makes a comment to Batman saying, in college, it was leather and motorbikes. Now, black rubber to Val Kilmer's Batman. And here, Uma Thurman says to George Clooney about his anatomically correct rubber suit. Uh, so big big rubber fetish thing going down in this movie. She then comments that every Poison Ivy action figure comes complete with him pointing to Bang. Uh, I can tell you as someone who remembers the action figure toy line when it came out, this is not true. Bane was sold separately. Uh, <laughs> so this is not outright lie. a real life. Basically, this results in a fight between Batman and Bane and they eventually all escape because uh, Robin's being an ass, and they kind of get away. And Batman is trying to talk sense to Robin, trying to tell him the truth, that he's betting that Poison Ivy's lips are poison, so don't kiss her. I mean, admittedly, he does sound like a jealous boyfriend at that point who's worried about his girlfriend cheating and is just to is his it- mate who he thinks is fucking her, is like, her lips are probably poison, don't do it! Is this when he just turns around and says, she wants to kill you, dick? <laughs> it just comes off really No, bad. no, that's, that's later, <laughs> okay. but that moment is incredible. But what he does do in this moment is throw Robin over the side into a vat of what looks like mint chop chip ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is an ice cream factory as well. Uh, so I assume it is. But I was like, at first, I was like, has he just thrown him in a vat of acid and created like another Joker or something like <laughs> just cuts to Robin but, ah my skin like he's gonna, he's gonna be like fucking Victor Fries <laughs> so Poison Ivy deactivates Nora Freezes mm. uh, kind of cryo chamber it essentially kills her she frames Batman for it and tells Mr Freeze that Batman has done it and then introduces 
her mutant plants that she's going to repopulate the earth with, which look very much like Audrey 2 from The yeah. Shop of Horrors. Now, I've got to say, I personally thought, considering what a faithful, loyal husband Victor came across from earlier, he forgets about his wife very quickly after she dies. Within five seconds, he's referring to him, Poison Ivy, as Adam and Evil, and says they can repopulate the world together. So I wasn't wasn't too impressed with that. Seems to mm. get through the Not grieving process quite quickly. Not quite sure how both of their singular evil plans work hand in hand either. If he wants to freeze the world and she wants to grow a bunch of mutant plants, like, hmm, are they both going to be able to do that? That is a very good point. <laughs> I mean, nothing Surely, grows in winter. Like his so. freezing will kill all nature, won't it? Yeah. But I do like the idea of just having two <laughs> villains in one film who both have some massive like world-ending scheme and they're both just going ahead with it <laughs> and helping each other rather than being like, let's pick one, shall we? But Robin cannot see the fucking leaf of the trees with Poison Ivy. His ego is going to his head. He wants a Robin signal in the sky. No one wants that. We've already had a fucking Riddler signal in the sky in the last film. Like, you know, he should have learned his lesson there. Yeah, I, I think if any kids were like, Robin fans are not going to get their due here at all are they it's no. uh it's it really makes you mm-hmm. dislike like Robin. I just wonder well, what Chris O'Donnell felt when he read this and watched it back and just go my god yeah, they really ruined my character Ugh. well he's incredibly Ugh. unlikable isn't he like in this film because Batman yeah. oh god even as a kid you're so on Clooney's side it's like yeah, yeah you're like a jerk yeah you're old enough to know better it took, <laughs> makes it worse you're a grown because man because Batman the thing is I think <laughs> What's genius and what I like about Batman and Bruce Wayne is that they are saying, yeah, I get it. I want Poison Ivy as well. But he realises it's because of an effect that she's put on them. Like, even though he can feel it too, but he knows it's fucking bullshit. So he is the wise one. Alfred, by now, is bedridden because of McGregor's syndrome. He tells Barbara that he wants Wilfred to take over his role. Uh, and he gives Alicia Silverstone a kind of CD-ROM of information it says oh this is kind of a big secret you need to get this to wilfred now number one i was like haven't you been searching for wilfred for years and you haven't been able to actually track him down so how do you think barbara's gonna is he just like oh you young people know how to use the internet you'll find him in five minutes it'll be fine number two he clearly has not discussed this situation with wilfred and he's planning on passing all his duties on to him and he's like he has duties he'll need to take over i mean wilfred when he hears this i mean if i was wilfred i'd be like i've got other things to do mate you know i'm not really that interested and also has he spoken to batman and robin about intending to reveal their secret identities to fucking wilfred in india who he hasn't spoken to about 45 (laughs) years Like, for all they know, Wilfred could just be like, all right, thanks very much, Alfred. I'll be selling this to the tabloids in the morning. At this point, he's clearly deranged. McGregor's syndrome. But it has a very effective scene, though, with George Clooney and Michael Goff, like, where you feel, actually, that they have sort of history. Like, you feel like this has been Clooney's been your Batman for four films already, or three films. It doesn't feel like this is his first performance as Bruce Wayne, when he's saying, I love you, old man, and he's sort of, like, cradling him in bed. It has, like, a feel of history there. I, You know, every viewing I've had, I felt like that scene does land, considering all the nuts shit going on either side of it. That, yeah, that really, scene does really work. Yeah, really true. Because, yeah, considering that, it, you know, this is Michael Goff's, uh, like, what is it, fourth outing? He is in all of them up to now, isn't he? So his fourth, fourth outing, outing yeah. Donald's yeah. second, yeah. like, Clooney is the new one of the core team. And, yeah, you're right, he fits right in. And, but I buy the, 
the Alfred Batman stuff here. I, I think Clooney's so unfairly derided for like his partners. I mean, of course, he's sort of moved on to greater, bigger things, which is lucky for him. But it wasn't the career killer that could have been. But you know, he sort of looks back at last time. But he should be proud of it. I, in a sense, I think like it, he comes out with a lot of credit. Oh, I agree. I, I think that scene where he tells Alfred he loves him. I kind of think it's really ahead of its time because I think when that came out, that seemed like quite a big thing for a guy to be saying to another guy who's not his dad or something, like, you know, I love you and everything like that. And he kind of embraces him as well. He kind of, like, you know, full-on hugs him and kind of kisses him and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's a really well-played, nice scene between two really high-quality actors you know, I think it's kind of almost like a modern man version of Bruce Wayne who's in touch with his feelings mm. at that point. And I know Clooney is ashamed of this film and his part in it, but I agree with you. I don't, I don't think he should be. I think he tries his best in this film. And in scenes like that, he really comes through. So Barbara is trying to break into this kind of CD-ROM that Alfred's given her and she's tried to guess passwords. All of her password guesses are total shit, by the way. She's guessing like the most obvious things in the world. And the actual password that gets her in is Peg, which is Alfred's nickname for his sister. And I was like, if this was now, if Alfred tried to use the password Peg, it would come up password too weak. Try again. You're like, a weak you know, old man. Like, add a, a better password. Or an explanation mark. Basically, she manages to break into the CD-ROM Instantly, it seems to start showing her the film's opening title sequence, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure what's going on there. She goes down to the Batcave, and as always, whenever you get the intruder alert, it just starts showing you everything in the uh, Batcave. It's like, oh, there's an intruder here. Well, then look at everything. <laughs> intruder alerts just release gas that knocks you out, so that yes. like Bruce Wayne or Alfred could come later on and just drag you well, to yeah, somewhere you never found from again. Identify them. Like, don't give them a chance to identify themselves. Mm. Just but fucking then doesn't it almost kill act them. as if like, it's yeah, responding like, to her because she says like it's me or something and the voice in the machine which is Alfred goes like oh yes I thought you would come here niece apparently Alfred has put his brain algorithms <laughs> into the computer not only that but he has created a costume for it he kind of says oh I assumed you would find your way down here I'm like well no assumed that you would betray me and rather than following mm. my fucking strict instructions and go Wilfred you break into the back this is why I followed you like, around with a tape measure I was secretly getting measurements I must say that Alfred has designed a very tight figure hugging costume for his underage niece <laughs> at this point because he does say like oh one in your size 34C I believe my dear <laughs> like, like quite dodgy but Matt we have got the moment you referred to she did it for me for love she's infected us with some sort of pheromone extract. Oh, is that what it is, Bruce? I'm under some kind of magic spell? She wants to kill you, dick. The best delivery of dick ever. Yes. Because he, he sells it in that moment dick. as if he's just calling him a dick rather than his name. Because it is his name, it flies. The tone in that delivery is so great. Again, Clutang comes through here because that bit where he turns around to Robin and says, You once said to me that being part of a team means trusting your partner and sometimes counting on someone else is the only way to win. You remember that? You weren't talking about being partners, you were talking about being a family. So I'm asking you, friend, partner, brother, will you trust me now? I fucking love that moment. I'm like, yeah, I'll trust you, Batman. And of course, what I love 
is there's a scene we don't actually get to see here because clearly Robin was turned around by what Batman said and they concocted this plan together with the plastic lips and all that kind of stuff because obviously in the next scene Robin goes to visit Poison Ivy and seduces her and then just as they kiss and, you know, she thinks she's poisoned him. Actually, he's wearing some plastic lips. And Batman arrives. Those rubber Basically. lips are such a 60s Batman gadget. Like, it's this film's version of the shark spray, yeah. shark repellent or whatever. It's like, haha, you think you've done this? Well, actually, I'm wearing rubber lips. But basically, Batgirl comes to the rescue, doesn't she? And kicks Ivy's botanical butt. Uh, you know, we get this very 90s feminism moment, don't we? Where essentially Batgirl slut shames Poison Ivy. Using feminine wiles to get what you want? Trading on your looks? Read a book, sister. That passive-aggressive number went out long ago. Chicks like you give women a bad name. Read a book, sister! <laughs> and uh, kicks her ass into Audrey 2's now fully grown size. Yeah, I was like, why is it trying to say like, that yeah. her own plant has now killed her? She was sat in it a minute ago, like a chaise lounge. Like, what? <laughs> but I forgot she does come yeah, back yeah, in jail. Yeah, I guess she's it's not just, dead. <laughs> it's just had enough of her at that point. Batgirl, Batman, Robin, United. She shows up and she's got that mask over her eyes, but it's clearly her. And she goes, Bruce, it's me. Barbara. And he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, he's meant to be the world's greatest detective. <laughs> yeah. Who else is going to fucking be? Realize we're now straight into the final set piece, which is where we get the opportunity to sell more toys. And they're all in brand new costumes. They're now in these weird ice kind of costume versions. I say I, when Batgirl has her helmet on, it's not a good look. Mm. It's only when she gets down to like the eyepiece. Oh, she looks great. The seat is funny you say that, right? I really liked her having the cow on. The moment where she's driving, she's got the cow and she's got her motorbike. It's pure 60s Batgirl in uh, the Adam West TV show. And I, I really love seeing that. And kind of when she took it off, I was like, oh, she's only taking it off. She kind of takes it off for no reason and kind of just chucks it to the side. I'm like, Alfred spent a whole <laughs> night making that. She kind of just chucks it away just because you've got to see Alicia Silverstone's lustrous locks, haven't you, at that point? Felt a bit studio mandate yes, to me at but that point. I just felt like it, does, it didn't feel connected to the rest of her suit. Like, that's what it, it just felt like a headpiece that was just wasn't going to do anything for her. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, maybe that's why you only see it fleetingly. Uh, so this is the big confrontation with Mr. Freeze because we've dealt with Poison Ivy now. Mr. Freeze is currently setting a load of bombs in the observatory and everything like that and he plans to freeze the city. And it's a great joke with the dog mid piss is, is great yes yeah that is it feels is very funny. it feels so Richard Lester some of this stuff very Superman yeah, too like the king of camp Superman too. yeah you know the guy being blown down the street was like trying to keep his toupee on <laughs> it's like it's that kind of like nuts shit like uh, that very much is it play here so basically, I mean, this is, it all kicks off, doesn't it? Because it ends up the whole telescope thing crashes out of the side and they're all falling. We get Batgirl saving Robin this time rather than the other way around, which mm. is nice. But this this is a genuinely a bit. great finale, you know, in a very silly movie. You've got continuing complications, clear stakes, a ticking clock, like it's jumping between little moments happening, but it's clear what's going on. Like, it's a very well-structured action set piece, and to end the film, it's great. And yeah, when the moment the telescope goes out, out the window, basically, it's this huge miniature. You've got that amazing scientist who just yeah, goes, that it's effect one is of those days, as he's getting smashed. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah. telescope falling out 
is some of the greatest miniature work. Those uh, scientists end up acting as a kind of Greek chorus <laughs> to Batman and Mr. Freeze's fight. They kind of boo uh, Mr. Freeze and go, Dirty Fighter, Dirty Fighter, wherever he hits Batman. Which Mr. Freeze does turn around like a wrestler and be like, to them. <laughs> uh, then Batman, whenever he gets in some punches, they're like cheering him on and stuff. So that's really hilarious. And obviously Batgirl and Robin fight Bane at the same time. And they realise that all they need to do is just kick his tubes out the back of his head <laughs> and he is defeated instantly. And he kind of like goes down to be a little weed again. And you actually cut back to Robin and Batgirl sort of laughing at him like oh fucking weed good nothing now like meanwhile Batman manages to incapacitate Mr. Freeze uh, but they've still got the problem of saving Gotham Batman says that satellites could fall the city but it would take a computer genius to do it now Robin immediately says when Batman says computer genius and Batman I should say says computer genius as if he doesn't believe there's any computer geniuses here says I'm on it and I'm just like aren't you for the fucking service <laughs> when did you learn to be a computer genius you know how to dry your clothes with some kung fu but I didn't know you were a computer genius <laughs> meanwhile Batgirl who we're told actually is studying computer sciences so at least yeah, she's like, you know uh, she I'll might this, have a background um, I think Akiva's earning his keep here, isn't he? Like he applied that earlier. It's like set up and pay off. Yeah, exactly. Classic exactly. screenwriting 101. Even though Robin talks down to her in that scene. Mate, you haven't got a fucking clue what you're doing. You're like fucking things up more, if anything. So, I have a B-Tech in this, okay? <laughs> yeah. Then they save the day. Inexplicably, they manage to do it. I think that's bad oh, Batgirl, yeah. not yeah, and it's a great score by Gordon Fall here, yes. like, you know, really selling the falling, you know, it's going to be a beautiful day. It's, it's a great moment, like, of release after, like, you know, the cold winter we've just had briefly. Yeah. There is something Batman triumphant about all this. Yeah. I will say, again, that this scene between Batman and Mr. Freeze is one of the moments in this film where I go, I think this is a genuinely good scene. And the final scene between yeah. Batman and Mr. Well, it's Freeze. very true to Batman's, mm -hmm. like, ideals. You know, he's not killing the villain. It's not about killing him. It's about reasoning with him. And, you know, he's, he's defeated him as much as, like, he's thwarted his plans. He's going to jail for what he's done. But he actually has a, you know, moment of, like, humanity with him, which is really good. You know, all the criticisms leveled at Burton's Batman, where he's, like, you know, blowing away left, right, and center, it's actually really true to the comics, would you say? Yeah, I completely agree. He actually says a great line where he says vengeance isn't power anyone can take a life which is essentially the rule that batman lives by because he isn't a killer and he appeals to victor's humanity to him as a doctor but she's not dead we found her restored her she's still frozen alive waiting for you to find a cure she lives yes she lives but vengeance isn't power anyone can take a life to give life that's true power a power you once had she's alive so I'm asking you Victor Freeze help me save another life show me how to cure McGregor's syndrome in stage one and maybe you can also save the life of the man your wife once loved Still inside you, Victor. Buried deep beneath the snow. 
Will you help me? think Victor Fries was a GP but he acts like one at this moment and I genuinely think Arnie and Clunetang give him some great performances uh, in this moment I think you know get a really human Batman redeeming the villain and that's what he's always trying to do Batman at the end he's always trying to reach yeah. out yeah it's no way back for Poison Ivy like she's uh, batshit crazy and uh, just gets eaten by a plant but Victor Fries here like there's a way back and I think that's like one of the probably good notes for Schwarzenegger was I was like, I want to be the good guy in the end. Yeah, actually, it's a good note to come mm -hmm. back around and have some redemption for him. I think yeah. it's beautiful. And as you say, uh, no redemption for Poison Ivy. It's the only time it happens in any of these films. Yeah, that's very true. And it's like quite a nice capper for the four. Yeah, 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 you're, you're right. Because it actually leaves you on a, it leaves this anthology on a real high. Like you have Freeze turn a corner and come back to the light. And then you have, of course, the you know scene which will follow, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it is something that like is quite nice about the way this series ends. Yeah, you're you're right completely. And of course, we do finally get Mister Freeze's revenge because it's revealed, obviously, that Poison Ivy attempted to kill his wife. Batman actually managed to save her and keep her in Cryo Freeze, and Mister Freeze is going to be allowed to work on her in Arkham Asylum and wear his full costume this time as well. No cold zone. Yeah, I, I wonder what that is. What is he actually doing to her? Like, just <laughs> freezing her every day? Just, like, horrendous <laughs> torture for the rest of her life. <laughs> yeah, he just, like, freezes her, pours her out, freezes her again, <laughs> like, sadist that he is. And he has the line, you know, winter has come and last, years before Game of Thrones. <laughs> so we're basically down to the final scene, aren't we? Where... Alfred is cured of McGregor syndrome and the entire Bat family are reunited. Basically, Batman, Robin and Batgirl are going to now be a team. And as Michael Goff says, we're going to need a bigger cave. I absolutely adore the score in this last bit. Yes. It's just great the way it all comes together. Uh, and, and it kind of leads into like the final, like uh, which has become a, a, a thing that you started in Batman Forever at the ending, is our heroes running towards the camera with the bat signal illuminating from behind, or you've got Batgirl joins them as they just charge towards the camera and it ends. It's fucking great. I love the last bit. It just leaves you such on a high. And I think mm. Mark Zorro stole this, him cutting Z in the cinema in the, next, in the following year. So that brings us to the end of uh, Batman Robin. So... Should we do some final thoughts with star ratings for this bad boy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're all in agreement here. It's it's like it's almost unrateable because like it's it's nowhere near a five star, it's not one star, it's 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 basically a complete balance mm -hmm. between like good and bad, where something has so many great redeeming elements, just how fun it is, how much enjoyment can be had and just like let giving yourself over to the experience. I think if you just go in and just like I'm not gonna criticize it, I'm just gonna enjoy it as a ride, as as a family fun film that it was meant to always meant to be. 
and kind of switch off from criticizing it for not being dark and, and, and pretty heavy and like taking the, the property too seriously you can have a really good time with this movie uh so it's, it's straight down the middle for me like two and a half stars again it's completely unrate unrateable it could be five if you enjoy yeah, it i yeah i totally agree with that paul i think it's i think it really is the epitome of the film where you say it's not what you want it to be it's what it is and you have to accept what it is and obviously when you have expectations that makes it really hard but strip free of them now able to just go along with the ride it really is one of those films where the saying you know switch your brain off at the door kind of makes sense with something like this because the parts that are that are bad and a bit shaky are the stuff that you can easily look beyond because of the panto camp nature of everything i think it's a great kids film i think that you know i think any kid would have a great blast with this because they wouldn't be asking the same sort of questions that hardened batman fans or even you know cinephiles would and if you do just surrender yourself to it it is a genuinely funny both intentionally and unintentionally so i think i think that's the thing i think with some good bad movies they're unintentionally hilarious and you get by it laughing at it whereas i think this kind of has its cake and eats it where you do laugh at it but there are bits that are clearly intentional and i think just talking about it tonight's really made me appreciate some of the smaller moments there's ones we've picked out where it's little moments of Clooney doing something or a scene between him and alfred and I think these are parts that get overlooked when the masses kind of talk about it. You know, you bring it up in any situation and it's straight to the Arnie puns and the, the day glow style. And that's all incredibly valid. I guess we're a rare breed of the sort of person who'd be like, yeah, we love good Batman films. We've also watched Batman and Robin about seven times. And we can tell you why it's more than just a sum of all the, the, the puns of its parts. And here are some of the bits that are real merit. And I think, you know, films like this made of such passion behind the camera as this aren't aren't done that often i think i think trying to get you know director's vision as such as such it is behind something you know get to get everything in service of the kind of film you're trying to make is such a hard thing to do and i think schumacher does it here because he has a cast that are completely in on it and every other department is working gangbusters and i think it's just a real kind of triumph and i think it's interesting that paul said you know he prefers this to forever and i'm probably in agreement as well just because i've i haven't watched forever half as much batman isn't bursting mm. off the mm. chain returns is it's the second stab at it it's like the one way it's like the unadulterated like this is their auteur take on batman it's schumacher yeah. off the chain doing what he wants to do everybody's on board with it and it's like this is 100 his vision and you could take it or leave it but it's like there's, no, there's nothing here that's unintentional. Exactly. I mean, and it's so hard think. to do these days because, you know, you get a lot of directors putting their stamp on franchise pictures. And even in the MCU, the people who have come on have definitely made films of their ilk, but in more of a house style. And this, you know, is so clearly a Schumacher film. It's like he just turned up to Warner Brothers have, after having made it and said, here it is. Like, you know, no notes because you weren't around. Like, I have no idea the process between filmmaker and studio through all of this. They must have just said... It worked before, let's just roll the dice. And I think, yeah, the time of that freedom has definitely passed, especially with huge properties like this. I think everything is so micromanaged before you even get a green light these days that what you're putting out is kind of agreed upon between filmmaker studio audiences, like fans are much more entitled now in general of what they want to see. Their voices can be heard more. And yeah, I think it's so hard now to just come out of the gate with something that's so clearly yours. And I agree with Paul, I think it's unrateable. So I give it a two and a half. <laughs> it's going to be three for three. I'm two and a half as well, straight down the middle. Uh, I agree that it's it's a borderline unrateable movie. I agree with you, Paul, that in the right 
situation judged on the right values, it could be a five star. I find it incredibly enjoyable. I feel like I can't give it more than two and a half, like by rights, because it is not a good film, but it is incredibly enjoyable. It is kind of one of the best good bad movies ever made, I think, if not my favourite. <laughs> Uh, I can watch it countless times and just have an absolute blast. I have crossed the Rubicon with it, where there are genuinely bits now, as we've discussed tonight, that I genuinely like and genuinely think are really good scenes. A bit like the Adam West 60s TV show, it is having its cake and eating it. You know, there are plenty of moments which are clearly intentionally hilarious and really funny. And that's something that gets kind of missed. I, I do think this film has become a complete punching bag because of the fact that it kind of essentially killed the superhero movie Stone Dead. And it arrived at the wrong time in terms of like, if this comes a year earlier, there would be a Batman triumphant today. Yes. Because yeah. the internet killed this movie. Fledgling as ain't cool news eviscerated this film and it went viral. It's like the, the minority of like people who were the kind of like man babies who wanted their, a dark Batman like really drummed up the, the hate towards this movie I think you know okay justifiably in some things if they want like the, I think the thing is there should be almost two convergent set franchises going on at the same time one pitched at families a bit like you have the Lego versions of stuff now and one like you know the, the Nolan verse they don't have to be one or the other can we just have both and that's so a really good happy? idea actually a really good idea a bit like now with yeah. Spider-Man we do have the Spider-Man MCU films, and we now also have the Spider-Verse movies. Yeah, absolutely. And the Spider-Verse is a brilliant like entry level, you know, way that you could show it to like a younger audience and kind of like be quite inspirational without having to have people, you know, smash to the face of blood flying out like <laughs> Rainbow <laughs> would like it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I and... agree. Two and a half. You'll never see it's like again. You know, I think that's in a weird way a bit of a show. I yeah and, and i think you know those kind of sites that sort of like do fat edits and just say you know we fixed batman and robin like in the same way we took out all the oh my god moments it's like there'd be nothing left like it's <laughs> yeah. film is those moments and it's all the better for them it needs them you can't you can't fix mm -hmm. this movie it is what it is and i for one would have loved to have seen batman triumph and... <laughs> I, I but that might have just taken away from this movie i think is the end of the road i think you know in a way mm -hmm. sort of, if, mm -hmm. if anything was going to kill like camp on the big screen <laughs> it was this movie yeah yeah and you could tell in all of the little kind of things you we know the little tidbits we know about Batman Triumphant. It was meant to, it was meant to be Schumacher back again, Clooney and Chris O'Donnell back again, John Travolta as the Scarecrow, Madonna as Harley Quinn. I mean, you know, that would have been even even more uh, camp than Batman. Yeah, John Travolta, like uh, it would have been just. I mean, like, actually, would have just been bad for <laughs> yeah. full stop. Yeah. Like, there'd be no redeeming. Like, this is a good bad film. There would just be bad <laughs> bad film. I think. Oh my <laughs> lord! Well, it's been a joy, guys, talking about this movie, <laughs> which I think is very uh, special to us. Yeah, I mean, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can drop us line at spotlightpod at gmail dot com. Maybe. Will inspire people listening to go and give Batman Robin another watch because you know I think a lot of people haven't seen it since the nineties. Yeah. If you watch it this Christmas Day, you know put, put Disney then. Plus down. Soul can wait, and that's the big new release. Slap on Batman and Robin. Let us know if you watch it on Christmas Day because Merry bloody Christmas to one and all. Kill the yes. heroes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we could make a, a revival of Batman and Robin happen. It will make me very happy. But until next time, it's Merry Christmas from me, Lou. Merry Christmas from me, Matt. <laughs>
Uh, Merry Christmas, people. Merry Christmas, sing! I'm Mr. White Christmas. I'm Mr. Snow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>